Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and this is episode 250 of the Astrology Podcast. I'm recording this on Sunday, April 19th, 2020, starting at exactly 7.30pm in Denver, Colorado. So this is a two-part episode. In the first part of the episode uh, is going to be a recording of a lecture that a friend of mine gave back in 2011, an astrologer named Alan White, uh, and he actually presented this lecture. It was an introduction to Hellenistic astrology lecture that he'd been giving for over a decade at that point that had been somewhat influential. And Alan passed away uh, after a long illness with cancer in August of 2011, but several months before uh, he died, I went out to visit him and stayed with him for a few days and talked about his life and sort of documented his life story and reflected on things. And um, I asked him to record a version of this lecture for me, which he'd given. I'd seen him give a few times in the past and which had been notable for reasons that I'll explain later. So he ended up recording the lecture for me um, at that point, and I've been meaning to release it for a long time now. So the first half of this episode, the first hour and a half, is basically just a recording of his presentation of this uh, flip chart lecture on an introduction to Hellenistic astrology. And then the second part of the episode, for about an hour after that, is an audio recording of an interview that I did with Alan uh, back around 2010 on my old podcast called Traditional Astrology Radio. And it was actually the first interview that I ever actually did with somebody on a podcast. So it's kind of notable for that reason. And I wanted to re-release it as part of the Astrology Podcast series in order to have it as an official part of this archive and sort of document uh, some of Alan's life and work and thought uh, as part of the Astrology Podcast. Since that other podcast, Traditional Astrology Radio, I stopped doing years ago back in 2012 and um, isn't really going to stick around for a long time. All right, so back to my um, outline. So, um, Alan was uh, 69 years old when he passed away in 2011 after a long battle with cancer. And he was somebody who was an associate of Project Hindsight, where He'd been into astrology for a number of years, but then in the mid-1990s, he'd been into astrology for a number of years, and he he was interested in it, but he always found it to be a little bit um, out there, a little bit too woo-woo for his tastes, until he found Project Hindsight, or he stumbled across Project Hindsight in the mid-1990s, and he became very excited about Hellenistic astrology and the revival of traditional astrology in general. and eventually became a close associate of Project Hindsight and would sometimes give lectures on the subject at different places around the country. So um, Alan's unique because he had kind of a gruff, somewhat abrasive character and personality. Uh, if you look at his birth chart, which I'll actually put up right now for those watching the video versions, he actually had Aries rising with Mars in Aries in the first whole sign house in a day chart, as well as the Sun and Mercury and Capricorn up in the 10th house. So he was also um, a former military guy. So he was a ex-special forces in the US Army, and um, he 
sort of fought in Vietnam, so he was a, a war veteran. So, and he could also be kind of more conservative, or he tended to lead, lean more conservative. So he would sometimes say things that might come off or might rub a lot of people the wrong way. But at the same time, he was also um, somebody who could be very kind. He could be very insightful as an astrologer, uh, and he also had a great sense of humor. So he had a number of redeeming qualities, even if he was a little bit rough around the edges. So this talk, though, is important for historical reasons because um, in my book on Hellenistic astrology, at one point in the history section, when I'm recounting the history of Hellenistic astrology and and when I get to the recent revival of Hellenistic astrology over the course of the past 30 years, where it's just recently been recovered by contemporary astrologers, um, I tell a story about how he gave an impromptu lecture at a conference in Seattle at one point in 2011 to a group of Kepler College students. And this is what led to Hellenistic astrology being taught at Kepler again, which subsequently allowed people like Demetra George to find it, it allowed myself to find it. And to whatever extent the subsequent revival of Hellenistic astrology happened or or was expanded as a result of that, it's due to Alan presenting this lecture that you're about to see at that conference. So that's the reason why I asked Alan before he died to record a version of this lecture for me, which he wasn't well enough to do at the time while I was still there, but he ended up recording at some point, I think, a few weeks after I left. Um, with the help of his wife, Jan White. So he was already pretty sick by the time he recorded this lecture, though, and it wasn't his best version of it because when he was still healthy, he he gave it with a lot more gusto and a lot more humor and warmth. And you can still see a lot of elements of that in the version that I'm about to um, present. But he was definitely sick by that point, and it's quite not quite like the best version of it. So for a number of years, I was trying to find a recording that would present a better version of it when he was more healthy, but I've been unable to do so. And over the past month, one of the last podcast episodes I released was the forecast for April of 2020. And by that time, I'd already gotten really sick, and you can hear it in my voice. And over the course of the past month, I've been actually super sick for a month now with what we think is COVID-19. Uh, I tried to get tested when I went into the emergency room at one point with lung pains in my right lung, but they wouldn't test me unless I was in critical condition. So uh, I can't confirm that that's what I've been dealing with, but um, I strongly think that that's the case because I haven't been sick for this long before. Anyway, so Getting sick like that over the past month has made me start thinking about my own mortality a lot, and it reminded me of this lecture of Alan's, of my friend Alan White, that I've been meaning to release for a while. So um, I wanted to go ahead and do that with episode 250 to make it an official part of the Astrology Podcast archive. So um, a few provisos, a few things I wanted to say ahead of time. Um, I don't necessarily agree with everything said in the video, and there's some aspects of Alan's attitude towards modern astrologers that I find kind of distasteful at this point. Um, although on some level, I view this lecture as a historical piece that's an accurate representation of a certain segment of the astrological community in the 2000s. 
And it's important to understand what the traditional revival meant to some extent to some of those people and what drew them to it. It was like there was a segment of astrologers who felt somewhat disillusioned by modern astrology for various reasons, and they were attracted to this presentation of traditional or ancient astrology that appealed to them for various reasons, some of which he'll explain in the lecture. I think it is worth noting that some of his actual views, when pressed on them, were a bit softer than some of his rhetoric implies, whether he's talking about modern astrologers or other topics. And in some instances, he would hold uh, somewhat contradictory opinions, like we all do from time to time. Um, Allen was a fervent supporter and close associate of Project Hindsight and Robert Schmidt, and most of his introduction to Hellenistic astrology lecture represents a sort of summary of one of Schmidt's early attempts to reconstruct Hellenistic astrology. This included this includes much that was genuinely part of the tradition when he's talking about things like sect or the uh, the rulers of the signs of the zodiac and things like that. Um, but there was also a lot of stuff in the lecture that represents Schmidt's own innovations that he came up with in the process of trying to find or trying to reconstruct these, this sort of hypothetical perfect system that he believed once existed, either rightly or wrongly. Um, Schmidt developed several different formulations of Hellenistic astrology during the 25-year or so period that he worked on the subject, so the formulation that Allen expresses here did not necessarily represent Schmidt's later thinking. Um, although it was probably a good summary of Schmidt's early technical or one of Schmidt's early technical formulations. Um, Allen was really attached to, to Schmidt's early formulations and could be dogmatic about them, although in later years he also attempted to keep Schmidt grounded when it came to some of his later attempts to reconstruct Hellenistic astrology that became more elaborate and in some instances a bit more far-flung or sort of disconnected from the tradition. He would say to Schmidt, that sounds great philosophically, but quote unquote, does it make astrological sense? And you'll hear him at one point in the lecture use that exact phrase, does it make astrological sense? Because um, Alan was first and foremost an astrologer, a practicing astrologer, and he was primarily interested in focusing on what worked and what made sense to him within the context of what he knew and understood about astrology and, and just how it works out in practice. Um, ultimately, Alan played an important and somewhat unsung role in being the translator of the translator and helping to translate some of Schmidt's um, more complex thoughts and reconstructions into more simple language that could be understood more readily by students and people who are new to the study of Hellenistic and traditional astrology in general. And while that role was not always appreciated by Schmidt in his lifetime by the various people who ended up playing that role, including myself or Demetra George, um, it was nonetheless important and historically relevant. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to put this lecture out there and make it a part of the official sort of historical record especially since I can't find an earlier version of it, and this one contains most of the core elements. All right, so before we get started, before we transition to the lecture, I just want to read the official obituary that I wrote and published. I think this is one of the only real obituaries that circulated for Alan 
um, in the astrological community uh, after he died, and it went out in like the NCGR newsletter and a few other places, but I can't find it online, so I wanted to read it here because it actually does a better job of summarizing most of his life and significance than sort of what I've haphazardly just attempted to do right now. All right, so um, Alan White was born. I give his birth date at first, of course, because he's an astrologer. So his birth date is January first, nineteen forty-two, at eleven thirty-seven a.m. in Washington D.C., and he passed away on August eighteenth, twenty eleven, at one thirty-six p.m. in Edenton, North Carolina. So here's the obituary. It says astrologer Alan White passed away on Thursday, August eighteenth, in Edenton, North Carolina, after a long illness. He was 69 years old. He's survived by his wife, Jan Stevens White, and his three children, Jeanette, Christopher, and Virginia. A native of Washington, D.C., Allen joined the Army in 1961 shortly after graduating from high school and served in Vietnam from 1963 to 1964 as a Green Beret with the 5th Special Forces Group. After completing his service in the military, Allen spent time focusing on his education and held a series of jobs prior to retiring, which included work as a mechanic, a traveling salesman, and an astrologer. Allen's interest in astrology began in 1963 when he bought a Zodiac watch in Saigon, which depicted the phases of the moon. Initially skeptical about the subject, Allen began studying it seriously in the 1970s, eventually attending his first astrological conference sometime in the 1980s. Disappointed that many of the approaches to astrology that he'd been exposed to at that point came off as too quote-unquote airy-fairy, he longed for a more concrete take on the subject. He found what he was looking for in 1995 when he discovered traditional astrology through Project Hindsight by attending the Second Phase Conclave in Berkeley Springs, West Virginia. Allen subsequently became, became an ardent supporter and eventually a close associate of the project. He began giving introductory lectures on Hellenistic astrology in the late 1990s and was an active member of the North Virginia chapter of the NCGR in the early 2000s. In summarizing his philosophy of astrology, he was particularly fond of a statement by the medieval astrologer Guido Bonatti that the purpose of astrology is to reconstruct the past, understand the present, and predict the future. In May of 2001, Allen was sent to Seattle to run a trade show booth for Project Hindsight at the annual Northwest Astrological Conference. The first class of students from the newly opened Kepler College of Astrological Arts and Sciences had just completed its first year, and the entire class was in attendance at the conference. One night at the conference, Alan was sitting in the lounge talking with a group of Kepler students and regaling them with stories about Hellenistic astrology. And they became intrigued enough to encourage him to put on an impromptu lecture on the subject in an empty conference room that same night. That lecture was particularly successful to the extent that the Kepler students encouraged one of their teachers who had also attended the lecture, Demetra George, to develop a course on Hellenistic astrology for the Kepler curriculum. Demetra subsequently traveled to the East Coast and spent several months studying under Alan and Robert Schmidt of Project Hindsight during the winter of 2001-2002. She began teaching the course on Hellenistic Astrology at Kepler in 2002, and many students were first introduced to the subject within that context, uh, including myself. 
To whatever extent the subsequent revival of Hellenistic astrology today and in the future is the result of Demetra's teachings or those whom she taught, it is thanks to Alan that this transmission was able to take place. In many ways, this is his most lasting legacy and contribution to the astrological community. All right, so um, that's the that's my obituary for Alan that I published back in 2011 when he died. Um, that's why this lecture is significant, and that's the historical context of the time frame in which it was put together and the way in which it influenced the tradition. So, for students of Hellenistic astrology, one thing you might want to pay attention to is how this formulation of Hellenistic astrology and the way that he presents it in some instances matches or in other instances doesn't match with the, the later formulations of Hellenistic astrology that have been put together in subsequent years by people like myself or Demetra George, um, just because that will give you some idea of the evolution of what we encountered when we came into the field and some of our teachers, and then the ways in which we've studied and expanded upon the sort of understanding of Hellenistic astrology and refined it or changed it in different ways, uh, but showing also some of the indebtedness that we had to our earlier teachers and our predecessors, such as Alan White and Robert Schmidt. All right, um, I think that's it for this introduction. So let's go ahead and jump into the lecture. Um, by Alan Schmidt um, on his fa famous flip chart uh, introduction to Hellenistic astrology. Morning, men. I am Sergeant White. Uh, for the next 15 minutes or so, I'll be your principal instructor. The subject is the A6. That's the M1919 A6 Air Cool 30 caliber fully automatic recall operated cruiser or belt bed weapon. It's It's Oh, this is the wrong crew for that. I'm sorry. Um, it's still airborne, the type of man your mother warned you about. Uh, I'm sorry, I, we're here today to talk about astrology, so uh, let me flip this thing over so I can get a hoorah out of everybody. Many moons ago, I started, uh, I got involved in astrology in order to disprove it. I'm still working on that. Uh, somehow, though, we went from a guy named Hermes Trismiscus around 400 BC to Muffy Starchild uh, giving lectures on sun signs for your pets. Uh, and Muffy rails on and on in her lecture about uh, how to get academic acceptance of astrologers without really thinking a thing through. I keep hearing this stuff over and over again. Uh, if the academic community ever accepts astrology, they're going to accept only the parts that they want, and most of the astrologers today will be out of business. So I would think that uh, we should set, tread very softly on that deal. Uh, modern astrology is filled up with all kinds of stuff, and uh, most of it's hyphenated. This is what's hyphened. We have uh, psychological hyphen astrology and we have past life hyphen astrology we probably have future life hyphen astrology and all this other hyphen astrology political correctness has seeped through the entire thing 
So instead of having a bunch of hardcore guys that uh, try to read God's clock, uh, what we end up with is a bunch of hand-holding wackos that uh, sit around and agree with whatever the client has to say, uh, and they fancy themselves as counselors. Well, my opinion is that if the counselor, if the, if the client is that screwed up, he really needs a shrink. He doesn't need an astrologer. You know, our job is to tell what's going on, what time it is, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether you should start something, whether you shouldn't start something, whether you're in a good period, whether you're in a bad period. There's a guy named Gita Bonatti. Gita and the mob. A big gun medieval astrologer who gave a definition of what astrology is. Astrology is designed to predict the future and reconstruct the past. That's what it does. It doesn't do anything else. It is not supposed to do anything else. And to try to stretch it so it does other things becomes not astrology. It becomes something else. It becomes psychology or channeling or whatever the hell it is. I remember going to a conference where somebody was going to channel the lecture, except the spirit never showed up and she stood there like a bump on a log. Davis thing I've ever seen in my life. Anyway, let's get on with this thing and see what we're going to do. This is basically an introduction to classic, ancient, hermetic, old Greek, Hellenistic, sometimes Mickey Mouse astrology, uh, brought to you by Project Hindsight. And we'll get to the Mickey Mouse stuff later, and that's basically Minnie, Mickey, and Pluto in the outer crowd. Uh, Project Hindsight are the guys that are translating you know, all of this ancient Greek stuff to try to make some semblance of sense out of it. And we throw it under the table and we beat it to death like it was a nasty snake until we can come up with stuff that everybody agrees to, that is, one, makes sense with the text, two, uh, is, is astrologically agreeable. So it has to make philosophical sense and it has to make astrological sense. And if it doesn't fulfill those two requirements, we haven't figured it out yet. We always ask why to everything. It's also at a Fasier Foundation, which is a nonprofit group. Um, we're not really a bunch of antiquarians. What we are, this is this is really a translation project. This is, you know, it's, it doesn't mean we're not really astrologers, just because we're not using modern references. This is the restoration of the astrology of the West. So if you are a Westerner, this is your stuff. This is not Vedic stuff, Indian stuff. This is not, you know, uh, Buddha contemplation. It is not peace and light and love and blessings where astrology is filled up with little kittens and rainbows and quarts of unicorn semen. Doesn't work this way. Now, after my little introduction with all the whistles and bells of, uh, you know, uh, where you've been, where you're going, who your mother-in-law is, and what you had for breakfast. Uh, if there are any other Green Berets out there that are interested in astrology, I'd appreciate sending me a note because uh, we can talk, we have the same language. Uh, I'm still fairly hardcore in my attitude uh, towards anything and everybody. Uh, and astrology is just one of those things. Uh, I believe in 
you know, cutting to the chase and doing the right stuff. So let's figure out where this stuff came from. Well, first off, it did not come from Never Never Land. It didn't come from the land of Nod, and it sure as hell didn't come from Oz. Uh, way back in the Stone Age, we had the mythical guys, the Chaldeans and the Sumerians, who were referred to by the Greeks as the ancients. Okay, we referred to the Greeks as the ancients. Actually, we would probably refer to somebody like uh, Gita Panani and, and the medieval crowd, or uh, Lily in Christian astrology with the Renaissance mob as the ancients. Uh, so, we really get back to some long ago references where the stuff is created. From Chaldean astrology, it basically split into three parts. Yeah, some of it goes to Egypt, some of it, you know, goes to the Arabs, and some of it goes to the Vedic. So let's figure out how this runs. Runs to the Egyptians about 400 B.C., 200 B.C. This is when this guy Hermes Trismiscus shows up, mythical guy. And apparently he, he and a, his school, put together what we now know as astrology. This is Hermes, Dorotheus, who read everything in verse, and we have fragments of this. Uh, we have stuff from Ptolemy, and a lot of Ptolemy's stuff is, is fragments that he got that he translated. We have nine books of Valens. Uh, the Arabs got four of those nine books, and they tried to put everything together. Um, from the Arabs, it goes to the medievals, but while this is going on, there's a colony, you know, of Greeks that go to India. And all of a sudden, Vedic astrology, you know, the Indian astrology was all written on these little banana leaves or whatever they were, uh, some kind of tea leaves or leaves. And all of a sudden, it, you know, it has this Greek influence that comes into it. Uh, at that time, both of the zodiacs were coinciding. So that, you know, everything started at zero degrees. So we still don't know, you know, whether to use tropical or whether to use sidereal. What we do know is that we've run charts using both of these things and the tropical seems to work a little bit better. Now, from the Egyptians, it also goes to the Arabs. Well, they mess around with it and uh, they change some of the some of the language involved, so, so that the zodion become now signs, and the places now become houses. It's really kind of strange. Uh, from the Arabs, it goes to the medieval crowd. That's Bonatti and uh, Leopold of Austria. And from there, it goes to the Renaissance mob. You know, this is Lily and his stuff. And then it gets into modern stuff where it has a little revival with Alan Leo. And from there we end up with Muffy. And now, you know, we have people who, you know, wanted the psychological crap and wants to take it over. And, you know, you have to have a degree in psychology in order to be an astrologer. And I'm thinking, what else would you do with a BA in, in, in psychology for crying out loud? Anyway, this is where the stuff came from, and this is where we are now, and this is where we started back here. Now, uh, we have 
This is what modern astrology does. Modern astrology involves itself with planets, houses, signs, aspects, transits, and returns. Hermetic or Hellenistic astrology involves itself with planets, houses, signs, aspects, transits, and returns. Is there any major difference here? No, except there are some serious major differences. Now, um, for those people who haven't, we're about to get into the meat of the thing. For those people who haven't seen me in a while, if I look like I've lost some weight, I have. So, uh, live with it. I also have a tendency to uh, smoke like a chimney, drink like a fish, and swear like a sailor. So if I offend anybody's delicate sensitivity, you bear with me. Okay. We're going to talk about planets. Um, the Greeks never referred to planets as planets. Uh, they referred to them as wandering stars. Ooh. Uh, and they never referred, they never called Mars, Mars. It was the star of Mars, or the star of Ares in this case, or the star of Aphrodite, or the star of Hermes. In other words, the planets are symbolic representations of a deity. It's also interesting to note that if you want to kick this stuff into the Christian level or today's level, uh, there are seven wandering stars which are named, uh, each day of the week is named for one of them. You know, Moon Day being the day of the moon, Sunday the day of the sun, Saturn Day the day of Saturn. There are also seven archangels. Um, and each one of them does something different. And uh, seven virtues and seven deadly sins and, you know, seven pops up a lot uh, today even. Okay. Planets do something called a phosis. Um, a phosis means an appearance that speaks. Now, Phosphorus conditions are when a planet stations, direct or retrograde, or when it makes its first or last appearance before it goes under the beams of the sun, or comes out from its beams of the sun because it's invisible and absorbed by the sun. Now, this means that at that time, the planet becomes intensified. Whoa. And so therefore, you know, we have the significations of the planet come to the fore. So let's go through some of these significations and figure out what they mean, what the Greeks call them, you know, and how we basically explain this star. The sun is Helios. It deals with light as in illumination because it is the means by which things are allowed to appear. In other words, if it's dark, you can't see it. And when you see it, you understand it. Don't you see? Sure, you see that. Uh, it takes its domicile in certain places. Each of the zodiac offer a domicile for a planet. That's where it lives. It is responsible for that. The sun takes its domicile in Leo. It also takes its domicile in Cancer. It's the feminine domicile of the sun. It takes its exaltation, where it's a big deal, get away with murder, you know, in Aries. 
and it is in its depression or cast down when it's in Libra. So it doesn't operate really well. We have Stillbone, our friend Hermes or Mercury. He is known as the gleaming, glittering, or glistening one. Ooh. He makes statements and declarations. Remember, Phosphorus is the appearance it speaks. This is how Mercury speaks. He makes statements and declarations. He deals, of course, in Gemini, Virgo. Apparently his exaltation is in Virgo. I'm still debating as to whether these are reversed with a day or a night chart. And he is depressed and feels lousy when he's in Pisces. That's when he goes off the chart and gets a little weird. Phosphorus, that's Venus or Aphrodite. She is the sparkling one. She entices. Oh, honey, me love you long time. She takes her domicile in Taurus and in Libra. She is exalted in Pisces, and she is in her depression in Virgo. Purities, Mars or Errors, the fiery one, he commands, which is what you would expect Mars to do. Everybody fall in. He's the sergeant major of the Zodiac. He takes his domicile in Aries and in Scorpio. He is exalted in Capricorn and he is cast down in Cancer. We have Phaethon, that's Jupiter or Zeus, the shining one. He speaks in metaphors and comparisons. He's the big analogy guy. He takes his domicile in Pisces and in Sagittarius. His exaltation is in Cancer, and he is depressed in Capricorn. We have Phanon, that's Saturn. He is the radiant one. He speaks in logic and deduction. His, his domicile is Capricorn and Aquarius. His exaltation is Libra. And he is in his depression in Aries. Then we have Selene, the moon, or Luna. She is the bright flame. She is true fossil. She just makes noise. She's like the static in a background. Or music, depending on where you are. She takes her domicile in Cancer. Her exaltation place is Taurus, and she is depressed in Scorpio. Now, she's a little interesting because the Zoroastrians say that she moves too fast to have a sign of her own. However, she has an affinity to Cancer. Therefore, she is allowed co-rulership of Cancer with the Sun. Now, this is entirely something new and something different than, than modern astrology we teach. But if you think about it for one minute, it makes perfect sense. And I'll get a little bit more into this when we get into our friend uh, Pluto, you know, when we get into the Mickey and Minnie show.
Now, no planet can take its exaltation in Scorpio because that is the depression of the moon. This is straight Hellenistic doctrine. Bang. There are also detriments. Now, the detriment is what we would call a planet probably being in its fall, I think is what modern astrology would classify. This is the point um, which we would call like an anti-domicile. In other words, it reacts and it has all the good stuff with it you know, that it can bring to the table. It just has no discipline, so it's going crazy all the time and trying to do whatever it wants to do. So you have to give it something to do if you have a planet, you know, in an opposition to its domicile. Okay, we have some basic natures of these planets. We have, remember the magic word, sect, that got me involved in this thing in the first place. We have... Um, the diurnal sect, which is basically run by the sun, and we have the nocturnal sect, basically run by the moon. The sun deals with selection and preference. The moon is inclusive and gathering. So basically this is selective and this is collective. We have Jupiter giving confirmation and stabilization to things. Venus gives unification and reconciliation. We have Saturn giving rejection and exclusion, and we have Mars giving separation and severance. And this is how this stuff works. In other words, you know, you have how do they work together, how do they work when they're opposite, how do they work with things. You have the morning and you have the evening planets. And this is basically how, how the planets have a basic nature which is theirs. And most people don't even use this stuff anymore. Okay, houses. My God, let's talk about houses. Um, the Arabs gave us houses. Before that, they were places. We have the first place, the second place. Houses give us topics. Um, and let me see if I can figure this one out or talk to you about this one in just a second. We call the zodion signs, but they really aren't. A zodion is a, how can I say this? A zodion is an animal. It is a living thing. It is the thing closest to the realm of the forms. It has natures and qualities. It will impress itself wherever it falls. First house, second house, third house. But these are actually places because it is the places that give signs for the determination of a specific topic. In other words, a sign points a direction to. Not unlike going to a strip center where you have a bunch of stores that are all lined up, storefronts, and on top of each storefront is a little sign. And the sign says videos, it says pizza, it says florist, it says realty, you know. Um, now, these give you directions for the determination of a particular topic. In other words, you don't go into the pizza joint and ask for a dozen roses. 
you don't go into the florist and ask for an extra pepperoni with, uh, with uh, double cheese on it. When you look at a chart, you have masculine and feminine signs, you know, alternating all the way around it to chart. We also have some other stuff going on here. In other words, the top half of the chart becomes masculine. The bottom half of the chart is feminine. We also have quadrants where this is a masculine quadrant, this is a feminine quadrant, and this is a feminine quadrant, this is a masculine quadrant. Now, this is important when you get into starting to recognize the gender of the sign where you have a masculine sign and a masculine quadrant and a masculine half of the chart and it becomes totally masculinized. Uh, this is, you know, to some people we don't even look at this stuff anymore, but uh, if you're looking at things of uh, a planet in its, in its rejoicing condition, which we went through a couple pages back, uh, this gets to be more important the more masculinized a diurnal planet is than the more feminized a nocturnal planet is. Now, they are further divided this way. We have zodion that are, or signs, that are solstitial and equinoctial. In other words, we have solstices there. These are the cardinal crab. We have Capricorn and Cancer that are solstitial, and Aries and Libra are equinoctial. And what they do is they cut off or break off their activities abruptly. In other words, they will take off like a shot and then drop to nothing. Then they're taken over by the solid crowd. That's Leo, Scorpio, Aquarius, and Taurus. And they allow you to finish and plod along, but you finish slowly. Some of them become complete or incomplete. And a completed, you know, let's look at Taurus. Taurus starts in the middle of Aries and ends in the middle of Gemini. It's a long, long zodion, long sign. So sometimes, even though it plods along, it may not complete its activities. Then you run into the bicorporeal crowd, which is literally double-bodied. And we have the twins, Gemini, you know, there are two of them. And we have Virgo, we have Sagittarius, and we have Pisces, which are the two fishes swimming in opposite direction. And what they do is they start and stop with fits and jumps and they're all over Robin Hood's barn and they have a tendency to be aggressive. And then blammo, they finish. So what you have is, is you're, if you're on the upswing from a bicorporeal sign, you run right on the same, you know, same thing you're doing, you know, through you know, the cardinal sign, drop back down to the solid sign, you know, and then wander down the garden path until you hit the next bicorporeal sign. This is like little Zuzu going to a party, hasn't got a clue where she's going, doesn't have a map, drives around, and all of a sudden she shows up where she's supposed to be. How did you do this? Well, we don't know, but she went all around Robin Hood's barn and ended up going to the party. Okay? Now, these are further divided into, you know, the different patterns 
you know, they show other than, you know, the co-presences or co-joinings, you know, which we would today call a, uh, uh, what the hell are they? When you got two signs together, it's a conjunction. conjunction. Um, uh, we have hexagons, we have squares, and we have triangles. And hexagons either show active and passive. Uh, they're either all masculine, which is all action and productive of change. And this is why I think that when we said that sextiles or hexagons are the most difficult thing to give any kind of prognostication on because you don't know what the hell they're going to do. They are productive of change. And so, as we see, you can lock them all up the, you know, between uh, either they're all going to be feminine or they're all going to be masculine. The feminine is rest, action and rest, and the feminine signs are somewhat resistant to change when you have a hexagon, you have a sextile. The squares are modes of completion. That's when you finish something. Remember, a square is action and activity, and the other end of that is how you're going to finish it up. You know, you have the equinoctial, which are abrupt beginnings and endings. Remember, they take off like a shot and then drop like a rock. The tropical uh, squares, you know, Cancer, Capricorn, are reversal or, or breaking off of uh, whatever activities you're doing. The solid signs are steady and they complete, and the bicorporeal crowd is digressive, but they, and they complete, but generally they'll complete with a change of course. In other words, you're going up and down all over Robin Hood's barn and then you finish what you're doing. Triangles will show you the modes of occurrence. Yeah, your fire crowd gives you imperatives. They are compelling. You must do this. The earth is definitive. It, it is determined. You know, this is what it is. Air is optative. It is uncertain. It is wishful stuff. You know, this is the air. Woo, it's, you know, smoke and mirrors. Water are kind of subjunctive or adaptive. They are pliable. You know, this may happen. So you've got must, is, wishes, and mays. And these are the modalities of the different signs. Okay? And you've got signs at sea. You also have signs at here, but you've got signs at sea. This is basically your warm and fuzzy stuff. I don't use this, but I threw this in here because, you know, it lets me draw little eye, eye pictures. Um, and you've got signs that perceive. So the signs that see are the guys with the eyes. Aries perceives. Uh, Aries sees Libra, and Libra perceives that it is seen. You know, uh, Taurus sees Virgo, and Virgo perceives that it is seen. And they give you sympathy and friendship and goodwill and all this whoopee-doo stuff. A harmony uh, in every association. These are the commanding signs and the obeying signs. In other words, you've got the sergeant major up here yelling and screaming. He commands and these guys obey. And they are good for the flight of fugitives or going abroad or accusations. So if you're going to break out of jail, 
what you want to do is wait until you know, you can come up with a good inception that uses these guys to get you know get into another country or something. Okay, let's go to aspects. The word aspect means to see. Uh, and planets see only forward. They do not see backwards. Uh, when they see forward, they witness and testify. They can testify, but they are witnessing. In other words, uh, Capricorn will see uh, Pisces. It will see Aries. It will see Taurus because it's looking in that direction. Capricorn will hurl rays when it's going back the other way. These are considered to be uh, a negative influence. Now they use the words aspect, they all said it was where see, gaze, behold, scrutinize, observe, and look. In other words, you know, when Capricorn looks at Aries, yada, yada, yada. Uh, the aspects that it forms are triangles, hexagons, squares, and diameters. Uh, and these are trines, they're basically ninth and fifth uh, sextiles or eleven and threes, you know, the houses, and this is how this stuff lines up, you know, basically with the aspects. Co-mixtures are not aspects. We've got, I think, two chapters in Valence, one of the uh, two planets in the same zodion, and they are said to co-mixture. And it gives you a, a different take on it. It's not necessarily, uh, it's not necessarily a real aspect. What it is, is similar to a conjunction, but it is a co-presence or co-mixture. These are not aspects. Aversions are not aspects. Now, an aversion is when a sign, when, when you have something that is either 30 degrees off, in one way or the other. In other words, Pisces is in aversion to Aries. Taurus is in aversion to Aries. Aries cannot see either one of them. Therefore, they are averse to each other. And you've got, you know, the semi-sextile crowd, which basically is the second and the twelfth house from the first. Then you've got in conjunction quincuxes, which is, which would be uh, the sixth house from the first and the eighth house from the first. They are said to fall amiss. Now, the adjacent aversion, that's 30 degrees off, are basically hostile to each other, okay? The ones that are an opposite aversion is basically a Saturnian thing. They are, as one is mercurial, and mercury deals in hostility and debate and, you know, this kind of stuff. Uh, the opposite aversion is basically Saturnian, and we come up with that from the theme of Monday, which we will get to sooner or later. Um, now, a reverse aspect is called the hurling of rays. Planets are taxed, in other words, they are said to tithe. Uh, they are reduced in strength by 10%, and it's considered to be a negative condition. So you don't have a reverse aspect. Aspects only move forward. That's superior and inferior. The superior planet 
is telling the inferior planet what to do. Okay, we have some mitigations going on here. And we have sympathies predicated on two things. First off is planets that share the same rulership, which is the Aries Scorpio crowd and the Taurus Libra crowd and so forth. You know. We also have uh, Zoidion have the same essential time. It doesn't matter where you are in the world, they're still going to rise at the same point. This is Aries, Pisces, uh, Taurus to Aquarius, Gemini to Capricorn, so forth, right around a chart here. Now, you read these things as reluctant conjunctions. It's like a, almost like a co-joining that doesn't want to really do it, but it has to talk with it anyway. Um, you also have mutual reception by rulers that mitigate uh, and sympathize with, um, you know, the different planets. Okay. Now, we go into a, a legal framework, and again, they constantly talk about things like um, witnessing and testifying, and you know, the planet sees planet, planet A sees planet B, and testifies to the ruler because it witnessed whatever is going on. If it doesn't see the ruler, it can't. It can witness the event, but it can't testify, so it doesn't do much good. All right, what we have are, and, and you know, I'm, I've always still been uncomfortable with rulership. Um, we have a Zodion that offers a planet a domicile. And we say, well, that planet is the ruler of the, actually it isn't. It's the Zodion that offers the planet the domicile. Now, the planet lives there, it feels comfortable there, and is therefore responsible to manage his domicile. Which means that if somebody shows up, uh, you know, it's a guest host kind of thing. <clears throat> the host, or the planet who, whose domicile it is, receives his guest and he takes responsibility for that planet. So you can have Mars that's sitting in, say, Leo, and you get a planet that transits and enters into or natally is deposited in, um, in Aries. Well, Mars is still responsible for that planet. Uh, the classic example I use would be Venus shows up in Mars domicile. And Venus, of course, likes art and she likes music and she, this is the kind of stuff that she wants to get involved in. <clears throat> so Mars has to provide for Venus's needs. Well, Mars can give her, you know, crayons and paint to draw on. He's got crayons or any shade of red. He has um, CDs of music that she can listen to. Uh, he has the complete collection of John Philip Sousa's marches. Uh, and he has uh, you know, a bugle and a war drum that she can play. And uh, 
he's still offering her the things that, that she needs. Uh, so this is basically how Mars would take care of Venus. Uh, a planet in its exaltation is honored or held highly. Uh, I like to look at this like a spoiled little kid that's visiting his grandmother and get away with bloody murder. You know, whatever little Willie wants to do is wonderful because he is held highly and in high regard and uh, all of his faults and shortcomings are just totally overlooked. <clears throat> and the, the legal condition for the domicile is whether the planet, whether the petition is heard. In other words, you can see an event, but if you don't see the ruler, the ruler can't do anything about it, because he's the guy that makes the final determination. Uh, the exaltation, the legality, terms of triviality or merit of the event. In other words, should it be acted on at all? The bound lord, or the terms in medieval astrology, uh, restricts the planet of the restricts the position of the planet in its domicile. Uh, if you're in the domicile of, of Mars, uh, uh, you might be shoveling uh, coal in front of an open fire, or uh, uh, you know, cracking up the fireplace, this kind of thing. Uh, if you're in a bounce of Jupiter in a, in a household, you would be in the Grand Hall, um, you know, where all the books are in the library and that kind of stuff. If you're in uh, Venus's domicile, you're probably in the drawing room in a rose garden where all of the knickknacks and neat stuff are. Uh, you know, if you're in Saturn's domicile, you're down in the basement where it's cold, you know. Uh, the bound lord will set the standard of judgment. In other words, a planet, I think a planet that's in, in a particular planet's bounds act like that planet. In other words, Venus and Saturn's bounds act like the planet, act like Saturn. Uh, the trigon lords, which are uh, predicated on, you know, like, the, like a triangle, like a trine, give you uh, the success and material conditions of the event and what's going to happen and that gives you the judgment or it has to conform to a certain standard. Um, you know, and the other kind of thing you have it would be uh, a planet in the place of a sectmate. Okay, solar phase is either 15 degrees of coming out from under the beams of the sun or going into the beams of the sun, you got to, it intensifies the planet, and you got seven days before and after where that planet gradually intensifies until it's exact on that, on that uh, 15 degree point. Ah, and it's tight as it's going to be, it's intensified and then it starts to relax for the next seven days until it gets back to normal again. Uh, this also it also operates predicated on uh, a station or a direct or retrograde, which again is a fastest condition. You also have that seven day slop time involved in there. Uh, combustion is when a planet is less than 15 degrees from the sun, and the strength of the planet is therefore absorbed into the sun. Uh, 
Yeah, which means that its effects either come to nothing or don't appear. Well, yes and no. In other words, the planet is taken up by the sun, so the sun, you know, has to release these effects, and it basically releases those effects only when the sun is in its own domicile. So when the sun is going through, when the sun comes up as what we call a time lord, uh, then you can expect you can expect it, the events which will normally be solar to actually be colored predicated on, on the planets that are combusted or held by the sun. This would be in a natal chart. Uh, retrograde, the word for retrograde in Greek is to recall. This means as in to take back. Um, like your car is recalled. It doesn't mean you sit around and think about it. Now, retrogrades are very strange. Benefics give and take away, and malefics just takes away what you already have. However, I've been doing a lot of thinking about retrogrades, and I think that retrogrades are inherently dangerous, and I'm predicating this on a couple of things. Um, they call, the Greeks constantly refer to a retrograde planet as a planet walking backwards. Now, we have specific significations of Mars, and Mars takes away or takes back things, and it also is the planet that walks backwards. It is a specific signification of Mars. Therefore, it seems to me as though retrograde, a planet retrograde, stationing retrograde, picks up a Mars influence. So I think that all retrogrades are dangerous as hell. Uh, now, you can take away something that you don't want to have taken away. You know, somebody runs into your car and your car gets taken away for a week or two weeks or whatever it is at the body shop to have it fixed. Or it can take away things that um, you actually forget about because if we didn't have retrogrades, we wouldn't have any growth. I mean, how many people still are friends with, with the people that they knew in the first and second grade for crying out loud? You know, as as you get older, you lose things. You lose your teeth, you know, um, and they're replaced by your permanent teeth. You lose your innocence. You lose. There's a lot of things that you lose going through, you know, the course of one's life that um, you know are are necessary for one's growth. Other than that, you'd be stagnant for the rest forever, and you'd always be in the same place. So it seems to me that retrogrades. Uh, you have to watch watch retrogrades. You know, when we, we say you don't buy anything that's electrical and Mercury's retrograde and this kind of stuff, and everything gets screwed up. Well, yeah, it may not be hitting your chart, but it might be hitting the chart of the company who made the computer program that you're messing with. It might be hitting uh, the chart of one of your friends that, uh, or your parents or your children or something else which will affect your life. So generally when there's a retrograde something 
you know, can be amiss with either you or with somebody that you know or something that you have. So watch out for record words. <clears throat> All right, here's the Looney Tunes section. Here are some special lunar concepts that we have. We have the prenatal lunation, which Schmidt says if it's a new moon, you get your due, and if it's a full moon, you pay. We generally assume this to be a contract with life and other people. Remember that the moon deals with one's life and the body. The sun is, uh, you know, the instrument of uh, uh, impressions that the soul receives. So basically the sun deals with the soul and the moon deals with the body. <clears throat> now, Demetri George came up with a neat, court, a neat thing that I think this concept should bear some um, further study and looking at. And she postulated it is a possibility that the prenatal lunation occurring prior to your birth is when the soul enters the body. Uh, we know that the Greeks had a concept of the soul because that's what the sun deals with it. Now, when a moon is void, uh, there are two considerations. First off, there's no application to a planet or a parthal ray for a day and a night. Um, sometimes uh, people are saying when it's 30 degrees, the moon has to move 30 degrees, so it's very rare. Uh, moon moves 30 degrees without hitting anything. No, makes no aspect to a planet. It's like slack time. It's wool gathering and vagabonds and wanderers have this void of course moon. Now, a void moon, you know, in a modern definition, is a planet that made its last aspect before it changes signs, generally is in the last of the signs. And of course they're using, you know, new planets or, you know, the Uranus and Neptune and Pluto. Uh, and I don't think so. I, you know, I think the reason that this is bizarre and you get bizarre effects from this is that the, the bound lord of each zodion that rules the last few degrees of each sign, each zodion, is a malefic. And therefore the moon is picking up malefic tendencies as it before it changes signs and it makes an ingress into the next sign. Ingresses intensify the planet anyway. So therefore you will have an intensified moon dealing with the life in a body that's running through bounds of a malefic, which means that uh, you're going to get some weird stuff that happens when the moon has made its last aspect before it changes the sign. Uh, it has nothing to do with being void, it has to do with being weird. Okay? Now, we have the dragon ends, which are the nodes, and they break down the power, power of the sign uh, that they occupy, either natally or by transits. Okay? Now, Valens, um, you know, we have this entire application of a um, a technique, which is, I think, really good if you're doing psychic fairs or this kind of stuff. We have the days of the moon, and you're looking for application separation on the first day of the moon, the third day, the seventh day, and the fortieth day. 
Um, the first day of the moon, of course, is the natal chart. I mean, you use the moon and you slam the moon and you ascend it and you read the chart. And this is basically your life. Yeah. The third day of the moon, the moon has moved one sign. So now you're reading it based on the conditions that you will meet in your life. In other words, will you be rich? Will you be famous? Will you own property? You know, are you a disaster area? Whatever the hell it is. Um, the seventh day of the moon, the moon will have moved to the fourth place from where it started. And that shows your conditions of family, hearth, home, uh, children, uh, whether you're going to be... Uh, you know, whether you're going to be, uh, you know, a farmer or whether you're going to be, um, you know, a merchant or basically how your life is going to gel based on the foundations of your life. The 40th day of the moon, the moon is going all the way around the chart and come back exactly opposite where it started. Uh, this shows conditions of, of uh, death conditions of old age. Um, it basically deals with reincarnation and uh, uh, rebirth. Now, when you read the chart, you're looking at planets that are 3 degrees, 7 degrees, 15 degrees, or 30 degrees from the moon. Uh, when they're 3 degrees, th this is basically childhood up to adolescence. Seven degrees is adolescence to the prime of your life. Fifteen degrees is middle age to old age. And thirty degrees would be um, the old age where it may never happen at all. And so this is how you, how you read this, uh, you know, the days of the moon by application of separation of planets. Okay, we have lots and lots. Um, these represent the virtues of the planets and are basically analogs to what the planet is sending you. The planet is trying to send you the best stuff it can, depending on what place it occupies, good or bad. Now, according to Big Al Baruni, uh, he tried to categorize all the lots that were listed at the time. And he said, this is the best I can do, but they proliferate daily. Uh, and again, we have a lot of uh, uh, bananas and a lot of, you know, tangerines and my God, it just goes on and on and on. I think Kurt Mainwaring in his uh, zodiacal uh, programs, that's uh, Zoidsoft, um, uh, lists 99 of them, and we uh, basically have put down here the seven classical lights. But there are also analogs. For instance, the lot of the father is the ascendant plus Saturn less, plus the sun equals a point. And that's the lot of the father. Now these are, this represents people who are like the father. May not be the father, may be the father. Um, these are teacher, scoutmaster, you know, coach. Somebody who acted like a parent to you. Um, it also represents like the fourth house, and it becomes the father figure, becomes the lot. So the parent, you look for the father, 
uh, in a chart and you're looking at the Sun and Saturn. If you're looking for the parent, you're looking for the Lord of the first, of the fourth. And if you're looking for the father figure, you're looking at the lot of the father. And this is how this stuff had a lot to break down. Okay, we have the seven classic lots, one for each planet. Okay? A uh, lot of fortune is probably the most important. It rolls, it's the moon's lot. And it deals with the body, possessions, reputation, and privilege. Uh, it also can be used as a health chart. In other words, if you put the lot of fortune as the ascendant in a chart, you read the chart, that's the health of the native. We have the lot of spirit, which is the sun's lot. You know, whether you're going to be famous, illuminated, in the spotlight. That is the ascendant plus the sun, less the moon, and this deals with the soul, the temper, and the mindfulness and power of the native. Venus's lot is Eros. I think Chris Brennan is writing a big book on Eros. The Ascendant plus Venus less the lot of spirit. It deals with desire, appetites, friendship, and favor. Mercury's lot or Hermes is necessity. It's the Ascendant plus fortune less Mercury. It gives constraint, struggles, enmities, and hatreds. Uh, Mars is courage, ascended, plus fortune, plus Mars. Boldness, treachery, might, villainy. Jupiter is victory. This is the ascended, plus Jupiter, plus a lot of spirit, trust, associations, and rewards. And of Saturn, of course, is nemesis. That's the ascended, plus fortune, plus Saturn. Destruction, grief, impotence, and exile. Now, once you get, these things are going to fall out somewhere, okay? And that lot, the Lord of the Zodion, where the lot falls, okay? You know, is it angular? Is it not? And the next thing you're looking at is, does it see the Lord, and does it see the planet whose lot it is? In other words, if fortune falls out in Aries, does it see Mars? And does that point also see the moon? Because that will give you, you know, a, a very active lot of fortune. Okay. So much for lots. Alright. With Hellenistic Astrology, we have three approaches. And you can enter into a chart in each one of these. Okay? You can do the seven hermetic techniques, which gives you the possibility of whether this is going to happen or not happen, and what's going to happen in your life. Gee, do you think I'll ever be the President of the United States? Well, the first thing you want to do is say, is it possible? The next thing, you give you the topical message, and that determines whether it's probable. You know, and if it's possible and probable, then you want to get into the winds and get into your you know, time lord procedures as to when it's going to happen. But if it isn't possible, there's no point in doing probable. And if it's possible and probable, then you do the wins. If it isn't probable, there's no point in doing the wins either. Okay? So, these are the different techniques that we have. There are different methods to use and there are different procedures involving time lords. 
Uh, modern astrology basically doesn't have a lot of these time lords, and we'll get into that in a minute. Here are the techniques. These are the universal hermetics. You've got the rising decan, lord of the nativity, the dispositors of the nativity. This is the bound trigon of the sect, the domicile lords, exaltation lords, yada, yada, yada. Then you got planets and lords in their houses. There are different places. And you got the seven hermetic lots, the classic lots we just went through. You've got 12 harmonics where you do, um, this is like faded uh, stuff that, you know, uh, shows up at different times. And here we go. Uh, and then you have the application and separation of the moon based on the lunar doctrine of the days of the moon based on the third. 3, 7, 15, 30 degree splits. So you got seven different techniques to run through in the analyzation of a chart. In other words, you don't just sit down and fumble around with it. You actually have an outline that you know where you're going with this thing. Here are the methods that you use. Um, we have the general significator and the predominating lord. We have the general significator and his delegated dispositors. We have planet significators and domicile lords. We have planet signification and trigon lords. We have the house signification and the domicile lord. We have the lot significator and the domicile lord. And we have derived houses from the general significators. Um, you know, general significators of houses three, four, five, and seven. This is how you run this damn thing. Now, each one of these will show up with a, with a dispositor that you're looking for, and this is what they do. You know, you have the sun dealing with rank, father, and friends, the moon dealing with appearances, mother, travel. You have Mercury dealing with children, profession, and contest. Venus deals with children, marriages, and sweeties. Uh, Mars is sibling, illness, and enemies. Jupiter is children, reputation, and friends, and Saturn is illness, enemies, and privation. Now, a lot of children showing up in this thing. Remember, there are four different places to deal with children in, a, in the Hellenistic system. Uh, you have the, you know, the fifth house, of course, dealing with children. You have the fourth, tenth, and eleventh house dealing with children. Now. The 10th the house would be children, the child as an heir, you know, the heir apparent. The 11th house would be children that assist the native in what he does. The 4th house are children to help the native in his old age. Yeah. So all of these are children, but they're different considerations of children. So, you know, you have to watch these things because each one of these things will give you a different consideration depending on what you're looking at. And we have time lords. Now, a lot of the stuff we're going through is basic stuff, and I keep getting back to the basics. Basics, basics, basic. If you get the basics down, everybody, you know, then you learn how to think astrologically. You learn how to think Hellenistically. Most everybody wants to run immediately to the time lords to find out when all this stuff's going to happen, isn't this one of and they ignore the basics. You, this is not mix and match stuff. Now, the time lords get very complicated. 
And this is, because of all these time lord systems, this is lacking in modern astrology. And of course, this is where everybody wants is more arrows in their quiver. But the first thing you have to know is how to aim the damn thing before you even start out trying to collect arrows. So get the basics down first. Uh, there are plenty of people out there that can give you a course in this stuff. All right, first thing we have is perfections. That is the most important. That's a, from the ascendant, ascendant, all planets and points in a chart you can perfect for them. This means that if you start with the first house, the ascendant, that represents year one of the native. Zero, happy birthday, you're born, to your first birthday. You're now one year old. Well, actually, you're entering into your second year because you've already gone through a year from zero to the end of the first year. The Lord of that the Lord of that particular place, particular sign, is the guy who's running the show for that year. That becomes the Lord of the year. And then you go to the next one and the next one. And you do a solar return predicator on that. Where does the Lord show up? Does he see himself natally? And here we go down the garden path. You can you can do perfections from any point or any planet. You just pick that's the starting in. That's the first year, second year, blah blah blah. You can also cut these down to a monthly perfection, a weekly perfection, a daily perfection. You can even get an hourly perfection if you want to go down that far. Now, so that's probably the most important thing you've got. We have decennials that are predicated on sec. Those are 10 years and nine months each. And we figure that these deal with life pursuit. We have the quarters method, which is based on the prenatal lunation. And that's the years of the planets. It shows the kind of indebtedness that you have to a particular planet or a particular uh, series of significators that are engineered by that planet. We have zodiacal releasing from fortune and spirit. So when a lot of fortune, you know, when we start releasing from fortune, when you show up around, you know, and you be, end up with a tenth from fortune, um, this is when you may be illuminated at some time. There's some big deal that's going to happen in your life. So we can release from these two points, which are, uh, done often and um, there are also encouraged programs so you don't have to sit down and pull your hair out figuring this stuff out. Uh, you release from from one planet to another planet. You may be releasing from an angular planet to a Caden planet and that sucks. You may be then releasing from that Caden planet back to an angular planet. This is great. So you have good times and you have bad times and you have times where nothing much happens. We have minor periods predicated on the exaltation of the planets. Uh, we have solar re returns, or, which are either solars or solunars. We have directions, uh, monomeria of the moon, you know, based on bounds and planets and angles. And I mean, my God, we got time lord procedures coming out of our ears. But remember, this is the last thing you're doing, because the first thing you've got to do is figure out whether things are possible and whether they're probable. And if those two figure out, then you can get into this stuff. But again, the first two deal with basics. So you got to do basics before you do anything else. Okay, we have transits. Now, 
Big ol' Abu Mashar, one of the big guns in Arab astrology, wrote down at, uh, remember these guys got four of the nine books of Valens. So he writes down, he says, we haven't got the transit doctrine from the Greeks, but based on everything else we do, this is what we think it is. The only problem is it was wrong. However, that made the cut into medieval astrology, word for word, and that made the cut into Renaissance astrology, and that's now exactly modern astrology's transit doctrine. Now, <clears throat> except it's wrong. Transits stretch or intensify the planet. Now, this means that the transiting planet will inform the native planet, natal planet, as to what it's supposed to do. Uh, we can say, well, we got a planet just sitting there waiting for somebody to tell it what to do, and you got a planet that sneaks up on it and advises it as to what you're going to do. Keep in mind that the natal planets are no longer there. They're now just sensitive points, and they're sensitive to certain transit, any transit. So we have a transit that comes along, a planet comes along transiting another planet, and uh, this figures big time, and particularly in, in solar returns and in time lord systems. But let's look at these things. For instance, we have Jupiter in a conjunction with Venus. Jupiter is transiting Venus. This is a great transit, okay? This means that everything generally comes up sweetness and light because Jupiter is informing Venus as to what to do. And you got Venus transiting Jupiter, right? Good, right? Modern astrology says this is wonderful. This is one of the worst transits you can have. This is when you feel like going out and spending a ton of money, you know, and expanding the hell out of it. So you go out and shopping for clothes and they're still in your closet five years later and they still have the price tags on them. This sucks. Here we have both the Malefics. We have Saturn in a transit to Mars. Good? Bad. Oh, it's bad. It's terrible. Well, actually it is terrible. You know, Saturn is the planet of no and it's telling Mars no action. Now Mars is sitting there ready to pull a pin on its hand grenade and then Saturn says don't go off. Well, that energy's going to go somewhere, and therefore, this is considered to be one of the worst transits you can have. Mars transiting Saturn. Bad transit, right? According to modern astrology, actually, this is one of the best transits you can have. Because Saturn is sitting there, the planet of no, but it's also the planet of hard work and responsibility, and Mars comes along and says, get the hell to work and do it responsibly. So this actually turns out to be one of the best transits you can have. Now this is how, you know, things going, people making stuff up ended up screwing up this system. Remember, this thing is predicated on a, on a philosophy that was put together by a man or a group of men over about a 150 year period. And we track this thing up to around 900 I guess the Arabs took over around, what, the 9th century, 900s, you know, um, A.D. And so you've got about a, you know, a thousand year, 1200 year process in here where it goes from, you know, people start questioning things and they write things down. And so not all the authors agree and we're trying to put them together so this 
actually the thing makes sense predicated on the philosophy involved and yeah, and, and does it make sense astrologically until it started getting mistranslated, screwed up, um, or made up by people who put their stuff on it, you know, and then it goes to somebody else, and then it goes to somebody else, and then it ends up with Muffy, Starchild, and Sun Signs for your pets. Now, here is the theme of my new sometimes known as the chart of the world. Whoa. Now, the chart of the world has cancer rising in the thing, okay? And, of course, you know, it's split between, runs into the sun, I'm sorry, the moon, the sun, you know, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. Runs in the order of, you know, planetary order. There it is, based on speeds of the planets, here we go. Now, <clears throat> runs the same way from the other side. Runs, you know, Saturn. Venus, I'm sorry, Jupiter, um, Mars, Venus, Mercury, back to the moon again. So we have Saturn opposite both the lights, okay? Uh, you know, and when we put the exaltation in, you know, what we have is Jupiter sitting on the, in the ascendant. We have, um, we have Saturn being exalted in the fourth, Mars exalted in the seventh, the Sun up here in the tenth, remember that's where the light comes from. We have uh, Venus and the Moon both in good places, and Mercury's in the least bad of the bad place and the least good of the good places. Okay? So, all the rulers domicile lords and all the exaltation kind of fit. Nodes where they fall out kind of break down the power of the zodion that they occupy in the south and the north nodes 6 and 12. Alright, let's look a little further at the theme of Monday. Now we have the theme of Monday and split it. Uh, normally the Top of the chart would be daytime, public. Nighttime would be private. But for the benefit of, you know, the viewing audience, we have just split this thing this way. So we have the lights, okay? And people have asked me, well, why the hell isn't the sun in the first house? Well, actually, the sun is in the first house. If you remember the Zoroastrian passage way back when, where the sun is the domicile lord of cancer, it's in its feminine domicile at that point. So we have the sun, remember, aspects go forward. The sun goes to Mercury. There's a sextile, you know, to Venus. There's a square to Mars, there's a trine to Jupiter, and there's an inconjunct to Saturn. Remember we said that, that the inconjuncts or the opposite versions have a tendency to ignore. This is when you're supposed to do something and you don't do it, even though you know you're supposed to do it and you put it off like your taxes and this kind of stuff. You know, and it ends up coming and bites you on the ass. This is the problem there. You ignored something that'll get you sooner or later. This is a basically a selective 
side because the sun selects. This is the collective side. Remember, aspects continue to go this way. So we have the moon in aversion to the eighth house, opposite aversion, and we have a trine from Jupiter, and we have the square from Mars, and we have the sextile from Venus, and we have the adjacent aversion. You know, remember, this is debate and con contestation from Mercury back to the moon. These are the two lights. Both of them oppose Saturn, but both of them are in the opposite aversion. So this is how this thing basically works. Remember that the moon collects, and here it's collecting all these aspects coming in to the moon. The sun selects, and here it is seeing forward and making these aspects, you know, to these various planets. Uh, Venus reconciles that which is unlike. And here we have sextiles, you know, going into both of the lights. You know, uh, our friend Mars separates that which is like. And so, he's here with a square to both the lights. Jupiter has a tendency to steady or stabilize, again, in a trine back to the lights. Mercury contests or keeps things up in the air, in suspense. Saturn deprives or ignores, deals in agnoia, which is ignorance and necessity. And here he is ignoring the sun and ignoring the moon. And again, it'll get you in trouble if you ignore stuff, particularly stuff you're supposed to do, which is why you're ignoring it in the first place. Okay. Now, so here we are back with the selection and collection and the contest and the mutancy and reconciliation and all this kind of stuff around the chart. Uh, planets aspect from the lights in the theme of Monday. Now, when I get stumped in a chart, which is sometimes very often, I generally go back to the theme of Monday and look at this thing and say, okay, you know, we're dealing with second house issue, we're dealing with third house issue. What are we doing? Are we reconciling? Are we contesting? What in the hell is going on in the theme of Monday? And sometimes that'll ignite a spark that you can figure out what you're doing. Um, we're currently in the age of Pisces. Remember, uh, based on precession of the equinox, we have ages. Um, this is the age of the fish. And basically, your big religions will follow this. Uh, we have the fish. This is opposite Virgo, the bread. So we have, uh, you know, the uh, you know wine and water, or you know, uh, fish and the loaves. Remember the loaves and the fishes and the, all this fishy stuff. Uh, before that, we were in, I guess, the Jewish age, which would be. Uh, Aries and all that bloodthirsty stuff. Uh, the Romans showed up big time then. But we have um, uh, the Lamb, the Ram, the coming of the Lamb, and all this Aries stuff. Before that, we had the sacred cow of, uh, of um, Egypt. Um, this is, I guess, is why you know Moses goes up on the mountain. You know, starting at the age of of, uh, of Mars. And you know of of Aries, and um, I 
you know, the people he left down below built themselves a sacred cow. In other words, they were reverting back to, you know, this Tarian age. Before that, we were involved in, what, the Mithrian mysteries, and they went both ways at once, and it was, you know, hot, cold, up and down. And so, basically, we can trace religions around here. This is great. So, we're actually in the ninth place, which is a good place, uh, the age of Pisces, based on the theme of Monday. And we're about to hit the age of Aquarius, which takes us into the eighth place, which sucks, ruled by Saturn, which sucks worse. So, uh, everybody wants to get to the age of Aquarius, and it's all peace and light, love and blessings, because they've listened to your damn song probably too much. Uh, I have no desire to end up in the age of Aquarius with uh, Saturn running the show. Alright, let's look at some woo-woo stuff. Here's uh, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto. So here's Minnie, Mickey, and Pluto. Whoopee. Now, the first thing that modern astrologers do is run to the outer planets. And, you know, who's transiting what and all this kind of stuff. And they still haven't got a clue as to what the hell they're doing with this damn stuff. These planets haven't been around long enough to really figure out exactly what they do other than, you know, you make something up and there it is. Uh, they are called transpersonal or transcendental, and that's fine. I'm not so sure they know what these words mean, but uh, uh, let's take a look at them anyway. Uranus shows up <clears throat> 1781, uh, and Uranus uh, is discovered in the sign of Gemini, okay? And so, of course, the moderns have given it the rulership of Aquarius. I don't know why, but they have. Uh, other than it seems to be a good idea to some people. Now, it's interesting that Uranus shows up within three weeks of Kant publishing his uh, Critique of Pure Reason. And, uh, you know, Schmidt's always looking for, you know, the philosophers that were accompanying the, the uh, discovery of these planets, whether it's uh, uh, Kant or uh, Marx or Hegel. And I'm looking for stuff that happened at the same time, which was brand new, never been seen before, new and exciting. And then I tried to come up with keywords for that. Hi, now Uranus is supposed to be chaos, confusion, rebellion, upheaval, and all this other weird stuff that's predicated by modern astrology. However, uh, I can make a case for each of these planets, and I will right now, that they actually take on more of the features and more of the um, more of the significances of the Lord of the sign in which they were found, which they were discovered. Now Uranus uh, shows up in Gemini, and uh, Mercury, of course, is the Lord, and Valens clearly says that Mercury is the planet that is responsible for an erratic change in our life, and when things happen for no particular reason at all, and uh, 
uh, stuff that's totally uh, impossible to forecast. Which sounds a hell of a lot like what the moderns attribute to Uranus. Now, what happened at the time? So what, what, did we, what did we got with Uranus? What happened? It was new. Well, among other things, we had the United States of America. We had the Constitution of the United States of America, whereby we have a we the people instead of we the king. Now, this is something new and unusual. So, uh, in the history of the world, this indicates to me that Uranus deals with a kind of a rebellious idealism that uh, is not found by any of the other planets. In other words, Uranus is responsible for what we would call, what, the Middle Age crises, where you look around and you say, I'm tied down to my job, I'm tied down to my marriage, I'm tied down to all that stuff. And so you divorce your wife and you run off with your secretary, who is never going to get any older, and is never going to give you a rough time, and you buy a sports car that the oil is never going to have to be changed in, and you end up being disappointed by everything. Because the oil does need to be changed and your secretaries are going to become a livid bitch. Um, nonetheless, it's the idealistic push, you know, by this, uh, by our friend Uranus that does this. Now, we look at our friend Neptune, and of course they said, oh well, Neptune is like Venus. Ooh and Neptune is fuzzy, and Neptune is all this weird stuff. Uh, and it, of course it has to rule something, so it rules Pisces, you know, and I'm thinking, what the hell, well, maybe ruling Pisces because they both deal with, one's a water sign and the other's God of the sea, I don't know. Uh, this thing shows up in 1842 or 46, depending on, you know, who you're listening to. Sometime in there it shows up. Now what the hell is going on here? Well, and I look right before, right after, and uh, first off we have the discovery of photography. We have a guy named Matthew Brady who's running around in Civil War battlefields taking pictures of corpses laid out. Uh, and they get published in newspapers. And people are totally revolted at this. Now you hold up the paper and say, look at this, look at this, look at all these dead people. Well, actually, they aren't dead people. Those are images of ink, you know, patterned on a piece of paper to resemble. It looks real close. This is where we get Hollywood. This is where we get movies and photography and all this kind of stuff. So Neptune deals with a kind of absolute perfect imagery, which heretofore had never been seen before. Never ever been able to do this. Now. Neptune shows up in Aquarius, and Aquarius, of course, is ruled by Saturn. So, you know, it isn't too much difficult, difficulty in my mind to make the leap from Saturn's ruling of illusion and deception into an imagery that also can be very deceptive. Okay? Uh, remember that... Uh, you know, we're dealing with uh, marks, we're dealing with all this collective weirdo stuff, and it's odd that this guy shows up at 25 degrees of Gemini, and Neptune shows up at 25 degrees of Aquarius. 
And so therefore, Neptune is in superior position you know, to Uranus. So we have, in the United States, we have this, this uh, very libertarian, uh, freedom-loving, pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps that is now starting to be replaced uh, ever since Lincoln um, by the centralization of government and the collective nature thereof. And it's getting worse and worse and worse. But again, Neptune is in superior position you know, to Uranus and is therefore telling everybody what to do. Our friend Pluto shows up in Cancer. Now, so what happened? It's new. What we have is uh, the first computer was invented and they put this thing together and they had to build a special three-story building to put the damn computer in. And a cell phone you guys carry around with you today is more powerful than that three-story computer. Um, so Pluto basically takes big stuff and makes it into little stuff. Or little stuff, like an atom, and makes it into a bomb. That's uh, little stuff into big stuff. So it either, you know, is tremendous reduction or tremendous, you know, one or the other. Uh, and I've still been doing a lot of thinking about this. And I wrote this down so I won't screw it up. Remember, you got the sun that, that, that rules um, both Leo and Cancer. It takes its domicile in both of these places. Now, the sun in Cancer, well, let's look at the sun in Leo first. This is, there is the sun. This is fission, F-I-S-S-O, fission, okay? This is when the atom divides into lighter nuclei, i.e., the base becomes lighter. It takes the base stuff and makes it into lighter stuff. Therefore, releasing nuclear energy, which moves darkness into light. Now, fusion would be the sun in its feminine domicile. This takes lighter material, as in atoms, and divides it into heavier atoms, also releasing nuclear energy, which means it's actually moving from light into dark. So, um, remember that the sun deals with illumination, or it makes things light so you're able to see them. So it seems to me that this is basically the difference that's going on here with uh, our friend Pluto and, you know, why it picks up after the sun in Cancer. It's basically the same damn deal. Um, so either these planets are transcendental or they're not. Remember that the word transcendental was first used in Kant's critique of pure reason, which goes back to our friend Uranus, uh, who became the trans transcendental planet. Now we have Sputnik shows up in the 50s. I remember that. Everybody ran out of the backyard and you know, watched this little satellite go across the sky. It was a big deal. Um, what does Sputnik rule? What happened at the time? Everybody went out and built a bomb shelter in their backyard. So Sputnik rules bomb shelters. Okay? Uh, you know, now we're at a Chiron, we have a bazillion asteroids, and everybody has to do everything, and we have Ceres, we have other weird stuff, we have all of this Mickey Mouse stuff 
Yeah, that's going down. But nobody's ever really thought the thing through. They just take what somebody else did way back when, you know, and the guy that, of course, you know, slammed, you know, uh, Uranus into the ruling sign of, of uh, having it being ruled by Aquarius was an Aquarian. So, of course, he wanted Uranus after, I think it was Raphael, either the first or the second, it's one of these wacko jobs. Um, and since then, everybody has to keep things going. All of a sudden, we end up with, oh, we're going to put this guy into Scorpio. Uh, so Pluto now gets to rule Scorpio. And then, of course, I mean, the whole thing falls apart when you, you know, when you actually say, well, does this have an exaltation board? Oh, yes, it is exalted in Scorpio. And I'm thinking, no planet can take its exaltation in Scorpio because it is the depression of the moon. So all of this modern stuff starts to unravel. This stuff is icing on the cake. You should be able to read a chart and do a hell of a job with, with seven lousy planets. You don't need these guys. Now, when they hit an angle, you know, it's like Schmidt. Schmidt has Pluto right on his ascendant. So, what is Schmidt doing? Here we have a brain that could have gone to MIT. Uh, this guy could do anything he wants to do. So he took a very small subject, which is like astrology, and then he took a smaller subject, which is Hellenistic astrology, and he's studying and translating the hell out of this stuff. Well, talk about trying to make something very little into a big deal. I mean, here it is right there. You know, I mean, that's basically what Pluto is doing. So I don't know what else to say about this other than, uh, I, you know, a lot of a lot of modern stuff is ill-thought, ill-conceived, uh, and it just doesn't make sense. So my recommendation is to go back to the stuff that is that is philosophically grounded, you know, in a system that actually is connected with each other and makes sense. This is how the West thinks it is very logical. And, uh, you know, it basically works like a charm. I mean, this is dynamite astrology. Now, this is just an overview, and there are plenty of people out there to give little, you know, classes and courses in this stuff, and they aren't very expensive. Uh, I think Chris Brennan's website I think he's teaching a, a class, and I don't think it's, you know, a hundred bucks or something. Um, and you get a course and learn this stuff. Start buying the books and start studying. And this is, this is my recommendation for the What It's Worth department. And this is basically the introduction and overview to Hellenistic Astrology. This is what works. This is why it works. Here it is. So have a good time and knock yourselves out. Welcome to WTAR Traditional Astrology Radio. Uh, I'm Chris Brennan, and it's Tuesday, December 7th, 2010, uh, here in Denver, Colorado. This is my first show since taking over from Jackie last month, and tonight I'm going to be interviewing astrologer Alan White. So Alan is an ex-Special uh, Forces Vietnam veteran, and he's been practicing astrology for several decades. 
Uh, he's given talks at a number of major astrology conferences, including the United Astrology Conference and the Northwest Astrology Conference. Uh, he specializes in Hellenistic astrology. So, Alan, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. How are you doing tonight? Is it snowing in Colorado? Uh, it is chilly here, but it's not quite snowing yet. But it's a good evening to have an interview, so thanks for thanks for coming on. <laughs> You're more than welcome, sir. So, first things first, uh, you've got, you've got probably one of the most colorful backgrounds of any astrologer I know. Uh, so how did you get into astrology? Well, I just kind of fumbled into it in order to disprove it. Um, maybe I ought to start off with, you know, the first two things I always do in a reading so I get two things right. Uh, way back when I was born at an early age and I was very young at the time. Um, which gives me two things that are absolutely accurate. Right. That's a good opening uh, statement for any, any delineation, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Actually, when I was young kid, 12, 13, 14, they were doing the, uh, studies at Duke University on ES, ESP, Mm -hmm. you know, woo woo, things that go bump in the dark and all that stuff. And I was fairly interested in that. I thought it was a lot of hooey, but then there was a book that came out. I don't know. You're probably too young to remember this. It's called The Search for Bridie Murphy. Mm-hmm. And um, it was about this gal and, you know, had all of these past life experiences relegated to this gal who lived in Ireland named Bridie Murphy. And they tracked her, this woman down who had been long deceased, but they found that this woman, you know, that had all these experiences, uh, were exactly the same, you know, more woo-woo stuff. So right. I thought this was, yeah, you know, this was very strange. Um, still had no clue about astrology, but it, it got me interested in things that go bump in the dark, metaphysics in general, that kind of stuff. Right. Paranormal, uh, sort of yeah. studies. Anyway, um, I grew up in Northern Virginia right outside Washington, D.C., at a time when teenagers were invented. You know, this was something new and unusual. Um, we had an entirely new class of people with their own music and their own uh, spending money. Um, this was new in American culture. You know, Chuck Berry and Fats Domino and all that stuff. So anyway, I went to high school and uh, got out of high school, joined the Army, see the world, find out who I was, that kind of thing. Ended up going through jump school and uh, got a Green Beret, went to Vietnam. You know, um, when I was in Vietnam, I went into the, uh, chanced into the PX at Saigon and uh, I purchased a watch. And I, my favorite wristwatch that I've been wearing forever, which was a Zodiac, you know, Zodiac watch company. Okay. And it, it had the phase of the moon on it, and, which I thought was really cool. So here is this harbinger of what I'm going to be doing um, 30 years down the road, you know, from that point. I mean, this is really bizarre, you know, when you start thinking about it. And, and what are you, you're in your uh, early 20s at that point? Yeah, I was, uh, you know, 22. Okay. And you, you know, were in the Special Forces... Um, yeah, and, and picking up and picking up a Zodiac watch at the PX. Right. 
Uh-huh. And then, so then what actually led to your studies of astrology after that point? You, you said that you wanted to disprove it. Uh, yeah. Uh, my sister was into this when I got back from the Nam. And, um, about 10 years after that, she gave me a, you know, one of these cookbook astrology deals, you know, that, um, you know, total general modern astrology stuff. You know, but enough of it hit, um, you know, that I was rather captivated by it. Um, at the time, I was doing a lot of studying of palmistry and all kinds of metaphysics in general, just reading books. And I noticed that all the lines on the hand and the mounts and everything were named after planets. So I started picking up astrology books and reading astrology books. And I got to the point where I could, you know, pick up a new book and uh, uh, about 60% of it was rehash. Right. 20% of it was maybe some new stuff from the author and 20% was absolute rubbish. Um, yeah, but I got to the point where I could distinguish all this stuff. Right. So you had some, and what is this, like the, what, early 70s at this point? Yeah, early 70s, mid-70s, that kind of thing. So I got into, uh, I finally got up enough courage to go to a conference. So I mm-hmm. went to the NCR, NCGR conference at, um, I think it was at the Key Bridge Marriott in Washington, D.C., right across the river from D.C., you know, and all of the wheels and all the guns were there, and here I am, this little bumpkin from absolute nowhere, um, that, you know, is going to be rubbing shoulders with these people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to a couple of the classes, and, man, was I in for a big disappointment. Uh, hell, I knew more about what was going on than the people who were giving the classes did. Well, one gal was going to channel the class, you know. You have to come to my class. You have to come. So I went and I listened, and the spirit didn't show up. So after 15 minutes of her standing in front of the room and us sitting there, everybody very uncomfortable, um, somebody somebody else sat up and stayed. I don't even remember what they were talking about, but it was it was very disappointing to me. Um, right. This uh, is the person who said they were going to channel their their astrological lecture, but then channel an astrological lecture, but the but the spirit didn't show. Right, so they just froze. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that, yeah. that was the that was your introduction to the modern sort of astrological that, community. Yeah, right. And I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me, you know? Right? I mean, these right. are the people who are running this thing. Yeah. And when was this? Oh, I don't know. It's mid seventies, I guess. You know. Okay, got it. So um, anyway, uh, I kind of gave up on it for a while and just went home and studied more. And, um, but I went to, uh, Coiner has a picnic every year in DC. She lives out in right. Silver Spring. Lynn, Lynn Coiner? Yes. I went to Lynn Coiner's picnic and ran into Ellen Black. And Ellen Black from Project Hindsight is, uh, trying to drum up people to come to her, you know, the first conference. And I just started a new job and it was no damn way that I could do this. Right. Yeah. You know, this is when I gave her my car and you know, that kind of stuff. So I uh, next year I get a call from Ellen Black that the card had jumped out of her wallet and I had to be at this thing. Well at so that this time is a, I was this is like nineteen ninety four? Yeah, my business card. So 
she was meeting in the American Legion Hall and wanted me to come up wearing my um, go-to-hell jacket with all of the uh, Special Forces patches and, you know, Viet Cong hunting club and Cambodian border safety guard and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, where you been, where you going, who your mother-in-law is, what you had for breakfast, you know, Vietnamese jump wings, the whole deal. Right. So here I show up wearing a green beret with all this and go into the bar. And there are two gals, and I say good morning. And they just sniffed at me like I was some kind of horrible creature from outer space. So I went to uh, the bar and ordered a beer, and there were some veterans at the bar. And I introduced myself, and... Of course, in a little podunk town like Berkeley Springs, if you were a Green Beret and going to the VFW or the American Legion, unless they have a couple of guys that go in there frequently, this is a big deal. Mm-hmm. So anyway, there was a conversation going on between a bunch of the regulars. And finally, one of them leans over to me and says, you know, we're glad to have you in and welcome and so forth. But, you know, we have guest astrologers here this week. And I said, yeah, I know. I'm one of them. And so... I said, oh, wow, now, this is really great. We have a Green Beret who comes into our club. He's an astrologer, and we got all these whack of astrologers. Anyway, what happened was the veterans started buying the uh, astrologers' beers, and everybody got along well for the week, uh, except for me, because the astrological community still snubbed me. Right. I mean, it's yeah. just, just crazy. You know, even Hand, uh, you know, makes his comment, you know, uh, when he's droning on and on about something about, uh, well, you know, the astrological community, we're all left of center, uh, with a possible limited exception of Alan White in the back row. Uh, and of course, everybody turns around and gives me a sneer. You know, all these, I mean, this is the leftover bunch from the 60s. Remember, we were all baby killers and all that stuff, you know? So, right. Uh, you know, yeah, we made some peace in the valley with the, with the veterans, but not so much with me. And it's been like that, uh, ever since I've been in the astrological community, to tell you the truth. Yeah. Right. I mean, you, uh, you're definitely unique since, I, I mean, there's not a lot of astrologers that are sort of ex-special forces. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, obviously you're kind of a unique, you have a unique, unique background, so it's a little bit, more difficult. Well, yeah, but it, you know, and also it makes me really hardcore and uh, hard nose, which you know, which opened the door to uh, Hellenistic astrology because that's what it is. You know, I mean, it's uh, it makes sense. It isn't this uh, uh, woo-woo, uh, you know, peace and light and love and blessings and rainbows in the sky and herds of unicorns and little fuzzy kittens forever. I mean, this stuff is, you know, you look at a chart and you read the chart. You, I mean, this is what it's going to say. You know, and, uh, you know, you're going to have some events that show up, and this is how you gauge them. And, you know, this is what goes on. You know, it's not, um, you know, it, it, it's not an excuse to justify other people's bad behavior. You know, you know, like Mars made you do it. You know, that kind of stuff. Right? Yeah, I can imagine that that type of astrology Hellenistic, which tends to be more uh, event-oriented and more concrete, would be more appealing to somebody that's looking for more. That's more of a straight shooter. Um, yeah, I like I like the philosophy uh, aspect of it. But you know, uh, and, and of course, you know, I mean, boy, you were there when we went around with Schmidt over and over and over again. That uh, I mean, the philosophy is fine, 
uh, but we're still dealing with astrology, so it has to make good astrological sense. Can't just make good philosophical sense. You know, has to do both. And um, that's you know when the project had uh, all of the all of the I, I don't know what you call them the uh, court hanger owners or the advisors or the people who were uh, you know constantly up there in the project making sure that everything that came out of the project made sense uh, was organized could be presented uh, was impossible to refute and uh, made good astrological sense. Right. That was basically the role you were playing when I was at hindsight was, as you said, making sure that things made not just good philosophical or conceptual sense, but that they worked out actually in chart delineations. And that was usually your role in, I guess, working with Schmidt in order to make sure that that was the case, that some of the huh. theories that he was developing made sense in chart delineations. Yeah. And of course, I won a few and I lost a few, but... um uh, you know, and then some I refuse to back down on, which is why he still calls me a heretic. Um, it isn't, it isn't 100%, uh, Hellenistic on certain, certain subjects. Um, you know, I mean, it's like the, you know, the sun, the sun ruling cancer. You know, I mean, this is one of my things and I, I, I refuse to budge on. I mean, it makes too much sense for it to be otherwise. Yeah. So, um, the, the Persian passage from the yeah. sage's book that the luminaries both ru- or rule both of the signs or the sun rules both both of those signs or something? Yeah. It, what he says is uh, is that the moon moves too fast to have its own zodion. Mm-hmm. However, because of its affinity to cancer, we will allow it co-rulership with the sun. Right. And the, the sun, therefore, takes its feminine domicile, you know, in cancer which makes a great deal of sense because this puts it opposite Saturn's domicile. So you now have the sun opposite Saturn's dom- both of Saturn's domiciles. Okay? Right. And the sun now has two domiciles. One of them is uh, like fission, and the other is like fusion. But it's still thermodynamic energy. I mean, what do you do with the sun at night? It's still being the sun. Okay? However, you can't see it. So it's kind of a sneaky sun. I mean, right. I know people with cancer. I have a friend of mine that's cancer, and she's she is just the sweetest person you, you could meet. You know, the nurturing and all the stuff that goes with cancer. Boy, you put her on the internet chat list, and I'm telling you, she's got an entirely different personality. You know, she comes across like an atomic bomb. You know, it's like Pluto personified. You know what I mean? Uh, and speaking of Pluto, that's also one of the interesting um, sort of approaches that I think that you've taken, that even though you're obviously your primary background is Hellenistic at this point, you're very much still rooted in modern astrology, but you take a lot of basically modern concepts and you try and approach them like a traditional astrologer would, like somebody like Valens would in the second century, if you took his approach and then threw the outer planets in and tried to figure out how to use them in a Hellenistic context, it seems like that's what a lot of your work has been about. Yeah, it, it's it's a little bit maybe more than that because this is one of the things that really discouraged me with modern astrology. I mean, you go to a modern astrology and boy, they can tell you everything you wanted to know and then some about Minnie, Mickey, and Pluto without really knowing what the hell they're talking about. All they're doing is mouthing other stuff. Now, 
you know, when you really look at this, all, all the moderns have done is taken a bunch of signification from other planets, you know, slammed them into a planet, you know, and, and then assign that planet to a, to a particular zodiac that they feel that planet would be most comfortable in. Well, this doesn't make any damn sense at all. This doesn't even make philosophical sense. It doesn't make astrological sense. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. So I've right. taken it from, from the point of view of what was going on at the time that these guys showed up. Yeah. Uh, what was, what did they bring to the table that was new? And I mean brand new. I don't mean Mickey Mouse rehash stuff. You know, new stuff. Uh, what did Uranus show up with? You know, they showed up with the concept of, you know, individual liberties for the people. Mm-hmm. You know, individualism. I mean, this was a big deal. This is not, not something that I had been, you know, heard of before. You know, because everybody had a, you know, generally had a monarch or a king or a, you know, there was something that was going on, an aristocracy or, you know, an elite ruling class, whatever it was. But the people sure as hell weren't in charge. Somebody else was. You know what I mean? Right. This is a new deal. Okay. In fact, um, you know, and then I look at the discovery decrees and I figure in a pre-existing chart, they have to be plugged in at that point. That's when they're born. They become, that's when society is ready or the human race is ready to receive their gifts. They right. have that's it one of the positions that uh, we've we've talked about a lot before because you take a strong position on that that basically the outer planets aren't valid or in some sense weren't or aren't useful in delineations prior to the, their discovery, right? Yeah, exactly right. What's the point of looking at um, Pluto and Nero's chart? Who gives a damn? Yeah, I uh, you know, but uh, you would want to look at Pluto in the United States chart. You look at it in your chart. But in the United States chart that I use, it's a pre-existing condition. The chart pre-exists the discovery of this point. So the point of discovery becomes the natal position of that planet in that chart. Okay, so the way in which you use it is actually to use the the discovery degree as, as sort of a key degree for that planet? Yeah. In other words... What you have when Uranus shows up, Uranus shows up at 26 degrees of Gemini, okay? Now, when they write the Constitution of the United States of America, okay, we have Jupiter ruling governments. That's a specific signification is given by Valens, you know, and this is back in the Stone Age, probably because all governments expand themselves. That's what they do best. Uh, And he shows up at 26 degrees of Gemini. That's where he is. He's exactly on the Uranus discovery degree. You know, so we now have this new concept, okay, uh, that applies to government, because that's what the Constitution is. It's a framework for the government. You know, it isn't right. a declaration of independence. It's just, you know, this is something else again, okay? Uh, Neptune shows up at 25 degrees of um, uh, Aquarius, and uh, it's in the fifth house in the chart that I use. It's exactly opposite uh, Pi- uh, Venus. I'm sorry. Exactly opposite Venus. And from that, you get imagery. But you get more than that. You get like Hollywood. 
because what happened when this guy is discovered, of course, you got Marx and the socialists and the progressives and later the communists and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but what you have here is an imagery that is almost real. So you have guys like Matthew Brady out running around on Civil War battlefields taking photographs of you know, Civil War dead, guys just in layers, you know, that have been wiped down by by rifle fire and cannon fire. And they printed them in the newspapers. And people got all shook up because they'd never seen anything like this before. You know, look at all these dead people. But they're not looking at dead people. They're looking at images of ink smeared on a piece of paper to make it look like what it's supposed to look like. Right. So... It takes after it takes after the Lord of the sign in which it is discovered. Saturn rules deception, and you know Neptune is like imagery, you know, which is kind of a deception, but it uh, it 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 is a more subtle form that gets us right. to the movies and television and God knows what else. Right, and that makes a lot of sense to say that instead of. Like one of your critiques is that modern astrologers, have, that the outer planets in modern astrology have appropriated a lot of the significations of the inner planets, but instead of saying that they've sort of replaced them or taken that over, instead that they're actually gaining some of that from the domicile lord uh, of the sign that they were discovered in. Sure, look at Uranus. Uranus is, um, uh, we give it, what, change chaos. It's when the wheels fall off the wagon for no reason at all. And what does Valen say about Mercury? I mean, the thing shows up in in, uh, in Gemini, and he, he says about Mercury that Mercury is responsible for conditions in our life that show up that we have no explanation for, stuff that comes right out of the blue. I mean, that's right. what he says. Now, boy, if that ain't a description of Uranus, I don't know what the hell is. Yeah? It's right. it is. Yeah? And then we have our good friend Pluto, who shows up at 17 degrees of um, uh, of Cancer. Remember, that's the feminine domicile of the sun. And I did a chart on Trinity. Uh, Trinity was the first atomic explosion. He set up the first atomic bomb. And what we have is we have Saturn co-joined the moon exactly at 17 degrees, you know, of Cancer. You know, boom. Now... So Pluto, in my opinion, takes big stuff and makes it little and little stuff and makes it big. In other words, it takes a, an atom and it makes a bomb out of it. You know, or in 1930, when it was discovered, um, they built the first computer. It uh, was University of Chicago. And they had to construct a three-story building in order to put this stupid computer in here. I mean, it was a monstrous thing, right? Now, the cell phone that you carry in your pocket today is much more powerful than that computer was, that three-story computer was then. So this is Pluto taking big stuff and making it little stuff. Even right. in people's charts. Look at this. You know, Schmidt, that's a good example, has Pluto on his ascendant. Exactly. Now, Schmidt has a hell of a brain, you know? Uh, he had a scholarship to MIT. I mean, he could have done anything. You know, he just decided to go to St. John's in Maryland and learn how to think, which is what he did. Now, 
He has taken something very minute in the world of academia, called Hellenistic astrology, and made a big deal out of it. Now, that's, that's Pluto again. And it's also very powerful, but it's taking you know, something little and making a new big deal. Welcome to the wonderful world of Pluto. Yeah? Right. So I'm yeah. looking at Mickey and Pluto if they're on an angle, you know, nailed on, you know, you know, a, a planet or, or you have transits to that natal position of discovery. You know, particularly in a pre-existing chart because the chart I'm running is, uh, the declaration for the necessity of taking up arms, you know, which is, uh, predates the Declaration of Independence by a year. And I think that's the formation of these United States of America as opposed to the Declaration. You know. Right. You use the war chart as the chart for the U.S.? Yeah. Um, Boyd and uh, uh, Firebrace came up with this thing. I read your book, and I was very impressed with it because I had been looking for, I've been looking for the right chart. I didn't like Sylvie. Uh, it was a weak sister chart, you know, the, everything in his brother-in-law's in the eighth house, which is a dysfunctional place, including the Lord of the Ascended. So the Lord of the Ascended doesn't even see the Ascended. I mean, the chart is totally nuts. Um, it, it is, it, it looks like a banana republic. I mean, that's yeah, what it tra- was. Tra- traditionally speaking, I think I'd agree that the, the Sibley chart, uh, doesn't look like the best uh, inceptional chart for a nation uh, from a... But it, but it had to be, it had to be because of what it is and what it did. In right. other words, what you have here is a year before, year before that, less two days. In other words, we're still in this perfection, um, first has perfection deal. Uh, what you have is the Second Continental Congress gets together and they they list a bunch of grievances and the last sentence is, we are taking up arms and we will not put them down until hostility ceases. Now, this is the closest thing to a declaration of war I've ever heard. You know, because before this time, all the shooting has been going on between militias. In other words, it's been the Massachusetts militia or the New York militia or the New Jersey militia, but it hasn't been any kind of unified effort. Now, they just made George Washington, you know, the commander of the military. You know? Organize an army and, you know, here we go. And all, all of the 13 colonies signed on to the thing. So effectively at that time, we became a country. What's the data for this chart? Oh, it's, um, July the 6th, 1775 at 11.05 a.m. in Philadelphia. Now, of course, Boyd and Firebrace were sidereolists, and when I converted the thing over, I ended up with a 29-degree Virgo rising, which nothing worked in the thing. Uh, so I adjusted the time by five minutes of clock time and ended up with zero degrees on all house cusps. And, uh, you know, I end up with a chart that looks like an absolute superpower, which is basically what's going on. And the perfections work on every damn event that I have just thrown out, and I just picked them. Um, I went everything from the Seneca Falls Conference to the Transatlantic Railroad to the right on down the line, building of the Panama Canal, a lot of different wars, landing on the moon. The perfections work. 
not only do the perfections work, and when I'm talking about perfections, that is the Lord for that uh, perfected place runs the year and uh, gives significant events. You know, transit through or by that becomes significant. Now, so transits to or by that planet uh, actually have, you know, have, they have something to say, and it also has something to say about what's going on. In other words, you can't have things like Neptune sextiles Venus, and so we go to war. I mean, neither one of these planets has to do anything with that. You know, it's just, that's just a transit. Now, when you have something like Neptune on top of Mars, that's going to war. That's a different concept. That's a seaborne attack. So, uh, so some of the placements, just really quick in this chart, just for those that are listening, uh, the chart has zero Libra rising with Saturn at two Libra, uh, exalted in the first house. It is at 20. Also, it's in its own bounds. It's doubly dignified. Okay. Uh, and also in a day chart, the sun is in Cancer in the 10 pole sign house at 14 Cancer. Jupiter is at nine Gemini, sextile to Mercury at 10 Leo in the 11th. Uh, with Venus at 26, uh, Leo, Mars in the 12th at 27 Virgo. The lot of fortune is in Capricorn, uh, with its domicile lord being Saturn in the 10th house relative to fortune. Yeah, it's a big gun chart. And the moon, which is we the people, is in the first house. Right. There, there is very little lore in Hellenistic astrology on mundane astrology. I mean, very little. So I, I got into this thing to determine whether or not we could use the Hellenistic concepts that we have in a mundane frame, and do they work? And the answer is, yes, we can, and yes, they do. Okay. So you're taking what are basically, since Hellenistic astrology, definitely I'd agree, is uh, almost entirely focused on natal astrology, and only sort of to a lesser extent on electional. It was really during the medieval period that medieval becomes more prominent. So you're taking some of the natal techniques, uh, the time lord techniques for natal astrology from Hellenistic and applying it to this chart? Yeah, right. Sure. Got it. In other words, I could also do this based on uh, modern astrology. We can look at that uh, zero degrees rising as a new nation, okay? Um, and we have Saturn there. Saturn is basically rules and regulations, okay? So it's a new nation under law. Uh, we the people, that's the moon, is in the first house. This is uh, the people for the people and by the people. you got the sun in the tenth, which is the president. You've got Jupiter in the ninth, which is the court system. And you've got two bodies, Venus and Mercury, occupying the eleventh, um, which would be uh, Congress representing the two houses, uh, you know, the raucous house of representatives by Mercury and the more sedate Senate. Uh, represented by Venus. And, you know, you end up with Mars stuck in the 12th, you know, controlled by the military or controlled by the people because Virgo and Libra have the same essential time, so you can read them basically as, uh, uh, you know, a co-joining, okay? So and, uh, from a modern frame, I can read it the same way. You know, it's right. just, just what the thing says. You know, but yeah. I... You know, when I start doing perfections on this thing, boy, it, it really comes alive. I mean... Yeah, Nick Diggenbest is in the... Uh, there's a chat room that's open right now uh, while the show is going, and he says that uh, that it was using this chart that 
you came the closest out of any astrologer he knows to predicting 9-11, and he, he says that you made that prediction in July of 2001? Somewhere around there. I don't know. I've been giving talks on this chart, jeez, uh, I guess for the past 12 years, you know, once a year at this little uh, annual event that uh, the Winchester, Virginia woo-woo mob has. And, of course, they're all a bunch of howling liberals, and they hate my guts, but they all come to listen to what I have to say, yeah? And so right. I generally end up with standing room only, full house, uh, the whole living room, you know, full of people sitting on the floor, and uh, we get down the garden path on this, and this is what's going to happen this year. And I've been uh, pretty much right on the money for uh, the last 10 or 12 years. I mean, this is what's been going down. Um, so what was it? I guess you were looking at the, you're basically looking at the eclipse, uh, back in 1999 and 2001. Uh, I guess Nick says that if you had focused on that ingress, that Mars ingress, you would have had it to the day or within a day? Well, it would have been, I uh, would have been awfully close. Uh, but you know, ingresses, uh, run for 14 days. I mean, you've got a seven day, stretch period up to the point that they're totally intensified at the event, and then they release and, um, you know, that kind of thing for the next seven days until they get back down to normal again. So what you're basically looking for, you know, with, with Hellenistic astrology, the modern astrology doesn't have at all, is the intensification of planets. So you have a timing mechanism. In other words, you're looking for the lord of the year, the lord of the month, you know, who is hot? And then you, you're right back to, okay, well, you know who's hot, you know who's not, but you know who's screwing who and who's on top, and that'll give you an event. Then you got to figure out what are, what places they're coming out of. Where do they come from? You know, why are they doing what they're doing? Because we still have the topical places, you know? That's the whole, whole fine houses. Yeah, well, I, I hate to use that. I just hate to use the word signs because a zodion is not a sign. It, you know, the places are the signs. In, in other words, when you get into to the, the first house, second house, third house, um, we can thank the Arabs for screwing all this up. Uh, you know, the house is the place, okay? And the first topical place gives determination for the signs of whatever it is. In other words, it points directions to a particular thing. That's what a sign does. You know, you go into a strip center, and it got 12 identical storefronts, okay? And the only way that you know what's going on is there's a sign over the top of each one of them. This is so you don't go into the florist and order a double pepperoni with extra cheese. Or you don't go into the pizza joint, you know, and order a you know, a side of beef and some broccoli because it isn't the supermarket, Yeah. Now, so I prefer to use the term a zodion, which is an, supposed to be an image, an animal, and a living thing uh, that has natures and qualities that it impresses on whatever place it finds itself in. Right. I think that Schmidt finally settled on image recently, and he's trying to push that as the new translation of sign or zodion, although it's it's sort of missing that other half of the component, which is the notion of something that's that's living or a living being. I, I think it's I think they're the most important things going and you gotta go to them first because they are a living thing. 
I mean, that's where we get zoology and, and zoo from is zodiac. Yeah. I mean, it's a zoo out there. Yeah. Right. I mean, you've been in the astrological world long enough to figure that one out. Yeah, definitely uh, astrological politics, I would definitely call an animal <laughs> farm. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's how I see it. You know, and I remember I have advised you on this stuff. Watch your back. Yeah, you so that's one of your biggest pieces of advice to a new astrologer is, is don't get embroiled in, in astrological politics. No, yeah, it's, you know, I mean, I don't even know if I'm going to rejoin the NCGR. I mean, I've given these people money forever and... You know, all they want is, uh, if you're going to speak at an astrological conference, it's run by the NCGR. You have to have certification from the NCGR, but the damn stuff that they teach and they demand, as you know, is all bogus. And the problem is, and here's the big problem, Chris, they know it's bogus. That's the problem. I mean, and this really upsets me. Uh, the second conclave we had at, you know, when I was all dressed up in my war suit, um, all the big guns from astrology were there, and oh, they were, oh, wow, this makes so much sense, and I'm going to have to change my lectures, and I have to rewrite my book, and yada, yada, yada. But nobody did it. Yeah, Demetra did it, but nobody else did it. Yeah? Right, uh, you had an interesting perspective being there. I mean, right in the middle of the 90s, when Project Hindsight was first taking off, I'm sure yeah. there were a lot of people that were feeling like that was going to change everything, and that the, the whole community was going to be different. Uh, in a yeah, very short so, period of time. So these people are still using the same bogus concepts, you know, to people who don't know anything and go to their first conference. It's crazy. I mean, it's just nuts. And, and ESAR, I mean, I've been, they've been trying to get me to join ESAR forever, and I refuse to do it because of this ethics thing. You know, they demand that you don't speak about death. Well, I mean, we speak about death all the time. We have endings of marriage. That's a, that's a divorce. It's a death of something. And we, we talk about death all the damn time. Oh, no, but you can't talk about death. Well, why not? It's, um, all this shows to me is that, you know, the people who are members of this organization are incompetent. That's what it shows right. to me. I mean, yeah. there has, I mean, there's definitely some issues. Um, you know, the m modern astrology and modern astrologers definitely have an aversion to the notion of, that astrology's purpose is for prediction, and it seems like some of the ethical guidelines, or what you're what you're saying is a lot of the ethical guidelines reflect that. There's sure. sort of aversion to the notion that astrology is about prediction, despite the fact that basically, I mean, that's the entire notion underlying it. That as soon as you start making statements about a person's birth chart, which is just a diagram that represents the positions of the planets the day that they were born, that you're inherently making a prediction based on that. So there's some... There, there are two things that that, uh, that I could say about this. The first thing is to ask the question of what is astrology? What is the definition of astrology? Now, according to Bonatti, you know, it is to predict the future and reconstruct the past. I mean, that's what it is. You figure out what went down, you know, based on, you know, you know, previous hits on a planet at a particular time, and you use that stuff to predict the future. Other than that, when the hell good is it? The second thing is that there is a psychological mumbo-jumbo crowd in astrology that wants to co-opt astrology. In other words, you have to have a degree in psychology in order to practice astrology. You know, I mean, what else are you going to do with a BA in psychology? You know, that kind of thing. You know, right. And then, so you object to the notion that astrology is 
Yeah, that spreads to the astrological, uh, you know, mainstream and they demand to be accepted by, you know, the, the, the academic and scientific community as a legitimate, you know, form. And I'm thinking, no, they aren't going to accept you. If they do anything, they will co-opt you. And you will no longer have any say in anything astrologically because it will all come out of some ivory tower university. That's interesting that you say that because that's actually become a, a point of discussion recently in the community because um, who is it? Christopher Warnock wrote this like, like op-ed piece on his forum last month about basically astrologers trying to get into universities and trying to appeal to academics or something, and he was sort of railing against that, but also railing against organiz astrological organizations that have attempted that, like Kepler, uh, and he was saying that Kepler was uh, bad or, or misguided or something because they weren't teaching enough astrology and they were doing it purely in an academic context. I think the astrological community as a whole runs its astrological colleges. That is an entirely different concept than being co-opted by, you know, Duke or the University of Maryland or Sanford or UCLA or something like that. That's a different deal. Yeah, okay? I agree. I mean, I, I think there's definitely a role for things like Kepler and... Uh, I mean, that's basically yeah. what hindsight is. Uh, it just doesn't have a degree program. But well, what? I mean, hindsight you had the potential about astrology, yeah? I mean, hindsight had the potential of doing that, but it, I mean, the biggest effect that hindsight had in a large teaching context was through Kepler and through Demetra, basically learning Hellenistic astrology from you and from Schmidt, and then teaching sure. that to several groups of students uh, through Kepler. Oh, yeah. I've had long conversations with Demetra uh, at that period to make sure a lecture was right. You know, I mean, yeah, I've been there, I've done that. Um, you know, I got the T-shirt, the whole thing. Uh, you know, but this is the kind of stuff we need. Um, and frankly, I, I don't know really what's going on in hindsight now. I've been down in North Carolina for, uh, uh going on just over two years now. And, um, so I'm not close enough anymore to get up there like every day, you know. So I, you know, I'm down here going to the VA once a month and, you know, getting, you know, trying to stay alive a little bit longer. And that's basically what I'm up to. Yeah. Um, but that's interesting. I mean, you've had, a huge effect, I think, on the sort of history and astro of astrology and on my own studies through the people that you've taught. Uh, I, when I was in Oregon a few months ago visiting Demetra, uh, she told me this really funny story about how there was this uh, Kepler symposium that was in Seattle in like 2000 or 2001, and all the students stayed over and went to the Norwalk conference in Seattle the next weekend. And one night at the bar, they were all standing around and there was this guy there and he was, he was sort of aggressively telling them about traditional astrology and they kind of piqued their interest and so they set up an impromptu lecture. I guess that was when you talked at Norwalk? I guess that was my Norwalk talk, yeah. They try to keep me in the shadows. Um, I did a talk at UWAC, you know, in the, what, the free speech thing and, uh, I had the hall totally filled up you know, I mean, the, the hall that people use to walk back and forth in a hotel, okay? <laughs> uh, created quite a traffic jam. Um, and but, then every, everybody rushed over and bought books. You know, I, I mean, this is what you got to do, you know? 
But counties, the astrological, they don't want any parts of me. I mean, they do not want to see me give lectures. They don't like that. Yeah. Yeah, you don't tend to play by the type of rules that I think most organizations like to outline. Well, you know, it makes them nervous. Uh, you know, you know, they got this hardcore guy who may say something that, uh, they don't agree, you know, that doesn't agree with what they've been pushing for the last umpty thousand years. This is how these people have made their livings. Yeah. They're not interested in that. Well, I mean, I think that in the, periods in which you've been allowed to give lectures, it certainly had a major effect. Uh, for example, in, you know, 2000 or 2001, I guess from what I'm told, you you basically gave an impromptu lecture that was like an introduction to Hellenistic astrology and the entire class or current class of Kepler students said that they wanted that that material in the curriculum. And so Demetra then, Demetra George then went off to study Hellenistic astrology with you and yeah, I remember we, we commandeered a room, uh, and this was against the party. I mean, they were having a big party upstairs. So okay. we didn't have any of the guns that showed up other than Demetra. But, uh, you know, we had standing room only in a room. It was a big deal. You know, I had my yeah, little just a... chart with me and did my thing. You know? Nice. I mean, and that hat in and of itself had a huge effect because then Demetra goes on to teach a, a several courses yeah. on Hellenistic astrology at Kepler, and then a number of people end up taking that. Um, I mean, I'm one of those people that took that course or was forced to take that course in 2004, 2005. Um, so that indirectly sort of, you know, made my, my study of Hellenistic astrology possible. Yeah, the only place I've been allowed to speak uh, and speak fairly freely was up at hindsight. So all the conclaves I got... You know, basically, uh, you know, the option to run my mouth, particularly at night when everybody's kind of, you know, laid back and having a beer. And I would just like, you know, I give my lecture and you can interrupt at any time and ask questions if you don't understand this stuff. And, uh, you know, it goes fairly well. You know, but I have people also that have come to these things and sat out on the porch and got drunk on wine. I've never attended class one that I've ever given. And and uh, profess to be experts in uh, Hellenistic astrology. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. There's a well, redneck in North Carolina that does that, as a matter of fact. Yeah. You know, and then of course, you know, I got into it with the past life crowd. You know, I mean, that just infuriated the hell out of me. Um, you know, and I, I asked, I said, well, you know, this is great. You're doing past lives. Can you also do future lives? If the next one is better, do you just commit suicide and leave? Um, I mean, this is nuts. How do you prove this stuff? And then I found out what they're doing. Well, they contemplate the nodes and they dream up a story and they start talking. And I'm thinking, this is, this is like the Gallic Channel the lecture way back when at the first conference that I went to. Yeah. You're talking this about uh, evolutionary astrology? Yeah, I mean, this is just, you know, to me, this is, this is beyond woo-woo. I mean, this is just nuts. This is out there somewhere. I just cannot wrap my head around it. Now, if I was, if they were going to start with something like the prenatal lunation, maybe I could say, okay, well, let's take a look at this. But they don't do that. They want to go with the, with the nodes. Now, what the hell do nodes have with, with past lives? God only knows, because I sure don't. Yeah. Yeah, that is curious. It is kind of a recent phenomenon when you look back in the history of astrology. You would think if the nodes had such important significance in 
karma and reincarnation, then you would see it show up, for example, in the Indian tradition where the nodes are used, you know, as almost as planets. And they have been for about 2,000 years now, but they don't seem to have any special significance or association with karma or, or reincarnation in Indian astrology. Yeah, but in, in Hellenistic, we also used the prenatal lunation. And I believe it was, we were brainstorming one night up in Cumberland, I believe it was Dimitri who came up with, maybe this is the entrance point of the soul into the body. Ah, right. you know, and that, that to me, that hit home, that, that made some sense. You know, so I started messing around with that, and there's no way I can prove it, but there's no way I can disprove it. But it's a hell of an interesting theory, you know? Right. So, I don't know. And then, I, you know, of course, way back when, when I was still feeling my way around, uh, even before the, the first Hellenistic conference that I went to, I took a, a trip with a girlfriend, a then-girlfriend, and we went to Virginia Beach and visited um, Casey's, you know, whatever that thing is, the Casey's Research Center or whatever the hell it is down here. And... Um, there was a book in the astrological section, a little pamphlet, on Gita Bonatti's aphorisms. Yeah, you know, the 147 aphorisms you judge a chart, blah, 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 you know, that kind of thing. And it wasn't very long, so I made a copy of it and brought it home. And the first thing it says is, determine the second of the planet. And then he never talks about that anymore. And I'm thinking, what in the hell is second? I never have heard it. Here I've been an astrologer for... You know, 20 years now, I've never even heard the word before. Now, it's interesting to me that everybody talks about sect, but nobody defines it. Nobody says what it is, what it's supposed to do, what is its purpose. You know, they tell you what it is, but they don't tell you what it's supposed to do. So I think that there's some kind of secret esoteric doctrine that goes along with this, because it's always the first thing they mention. And what I think it is, is that the sect of the chart represents the purpose of the soul in this life. And that planets contrary to the sect operate as distractions from that purpose. And they can be good and they can be bad or whatever it is. In other words, you may come in to learn humility, you know? But then again, you become an actor and end up in Hollywood and uh, have a bazillion dollars and drive around in a Duesenberg. Now, this doesn't help your uh, learning to be humble. You know what I mean? It right. may be a distraction. It may be a good distraction, but it sure as hell doesn't help your life purpose. Right. That's, so I mean, that's I'm, interesting. I'm kind of messing around with that one in my mind, too. Yeah? No, that makes sense to me. And that goes along with something that I usually tell clients that the, usually that, like the malefic that's of the sect in favor, so Saturn in a day chart or Mars in a night chart, tends to be obstacles that are sort of surmountable, the things that, you know, the situations that uh, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger type scenarios, sure. whereas the, the malefic that's contrary to the sect usually, usually tends to be things that just sort of knock you down that you can't get back up from. Um, yeah. And there's something that's almost a little bit more senseless or a little bit more, uh, you know, not constructive about that. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like um, it's that and, and like the lots. Nobody talks about those in modern astrology. You talk about the parts, but I don't think you know what they are. Uh, right. I mean, it's the same thing, and they, they talk about the part of fortune, but they really don't know what the hell it is. You know? mm -hmm. But there's also something like a lot. There's a lot of death, and there's a lot of the destroyer. And everybody has a destroying planet in their chart. 
And when these guys get together, you got a crisis on your hands. You got a personal crisis, health crisis, or, or some kind of crisis. There's also questions as to um, do planets cause events? You know, I mean, I, I've been doing charts long enough to know that you know when you park your car outside and a, a tree falls on it during a windstorm, um, you know, and you go out there and, it, and the Lord of the Twelfth is nailed on the descendant or something, you know, which deals in death among other things. Um, and the twelfth house being uh, your personal quadruped, whether it's a, you know, which is generally measured in horsepower. It could be a colt or a mustang or a pinto or God knows what. Um, who caused it? Did Mercury cause it, or did you fail to take notice of the windstorm that was coming and to move the car into a safe place so it wouldn't get squashed by a tree? Yeah. So in that perennial question of are the stars signs or causes? You take the position that the stars are signs of future events, but not causes. Yeah, I, I, I look at, I look at, uh, you know, that most of the stuff is is capable of mitigation. I mean, there are three kinds of of, of fate. Um, you know, one of which is chiseled in granite fate. You'll live until you die, and when your time comes up, you're gone. And there's nothing you could do about it. You know, but there are. You can change the, how can I say this, the magnitude of the event. If you know you're going to get a Mars event, you know, uh, you can change the magnitude of it. In other words, you can stub your toe or you can break your leg. What do you want to do? You know, that kind of stuff. That's almost like the Mesopotamian concept of the Namburi rituals or the propitiation rituals where you you sort of... Sure. Uh, that, and then there's, then there's chance. It's the, the 2K, luck. That's the wheel of fortune. You know, stuff just happens, you know. You know, somebody shows up at your door and say, well, you won a million-dollar lottery. And you say, I don't play the lottery. Oh, we have the wrong address. And they go next door. Well, you were lucky for a minute. You know, that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Right. So, <laughs> um, so the, but there is chance. Is really Right. These are all concepts that this is what really attracted you to traditional astrology because it feels like you have an access point for dealing with those those areas. Yeah. There's also fate versus free will. I mean, are all these things fated? Yeah, you're going to get an event when Mars rolls over the sun and Mars happens to be the perfected planet for the year, you're going to have an event. Now, the question is what kind of event is it going to be? And here's where the here's where the other part comes in. Are you going to react in a good way or a bad way? That's free will. Now, you know, that depends on, you know, can you make lemonades, lemonade out of lemons? And are you talking about just the internal response of the person? Or are you talking about like no. an actual? No, the internal response of the person to the event. Okay. In other words, I think, yes, you can change the magnitude of the event if you know what's going down. And then, yes, it's how. What is your response to it? You know, and, and that's, I think, where your free will comes in. Because, you know, again, you can pile negativity on yourself so the next event is much worse than this one. Or you can pile positive in and the next event is not as bad as this one. You know, right. it depends. You know, it depends on you. I think well, I said that, right? Yeah, that sounds right to me. Um on that note, it looks like there's about one minute remaining. So I think this is going to end on us in a few seconds. So I just want to thank you for 
you know, taking the time to do this interview. And well, thank you. I feel honored to be your first uh, guinea pig. Uh, yeah, well, I, I think it went well. We had more time to talk about the war chart and things like that, but... Yeah, well, thanks for coming on, and I'm hopefully next time we'll have more time to, to have you on and discuss the war chart. Okay, thank you. All right, bye. Bye. Thanks to the patrons who helped to support the production of this episode of the Astrology Podcast through our page on Patreon.com. In particular, shout out to patrons Christine Stone, Nate Craddock, and Marin Altman, as well as the AstroGold Astrology app available at astrogold.io, the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, and the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs available at honeycomb.co. The production of this episode of the podcast is also supported by the International Society for Astrological Research, which is hosting a major astrology conference in Denver, Colorado, September 10th through the 14th, 2020. More information about that at isar2020.org. And finally, also Solar Fire Astrology Software, which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 for a 15% discount on that software. For more information about how to become a patron of the Astrology Podcast and help support the production of future episodes while getting access to subscriber benefits like early access to new episodes or other bonus content, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast.